This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Hey, uh, good everything, Nubians. Apologies. Uh, good everything, everyone. We had to catch up. Uh, yeah, I was, we was to call you during my eight-hour drive from North no, Carolina. No, no, no. So you, we could have done that, but you know, we you had called me and text me, and I didn't have a phone nowhere near. I, know, I was you like all out. And then by the time I saw it, you was already up and down. Yeah, I was in Jersey by then. But I was like, man, four o'clock in the morning is dark outside. I can't see. It's oh, I'm out there driving like Mr. Magoo. I'm like the road hog to the truckers. And I was like, I need somebody to help me. I was, so Just, I was like, normally, four o'clock in the morning, I might be up. Oh. So, but but I wasn't, and then by the time I didn't look at the phone because by the time I got to that day, I'm like, oh no, where's the phone? I don't know. Because like you say, when school, the last day of school was Wednesday, the law school shut down, and then after that, I didn't pick up a phone again. And then when I saw you, I was, oh man, Karen. By then, you was I was seeing your mom numb. You didn't seen yeah, the fam, everybody, <laughs> and everybody who's been traveling now. Yeah. You know, I didn't see where there's many people on the road. Coming down, yes, it was like I got I got hemmed up around D.C. Virginia was like stop and go, stop and go. But I think I left a little too late, um, so I didn't want to make that mistake because I was live yesterday on the radio. So I was like, I gotta Amazing. be back before three at least. I don't want to be running in on two, you know, Hot Wheels. But you missed the mute every day. You got back in time to do your show live. Yeah, yeah, it was good too because we launched um, another uh, drop for the global majority. Um, this is a version of it, but we did a black on black, just special black. It's so dope. But, I saw um, on social media, you got you got a pants, well, you got a, a top and a bottom in this because somebody yeah. was like, I asked Carrie Hunter for a bit, and she did it. They was all celebrating. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, we have uh, you know, the the, the, the and the jogger to go with it. Yeah, yeah. Top the and jogger, bottom. That's what it was. Yeah, the jogger. So yeah, so people, you know, can work out or it's or truly a global majority, too. Yeah. I mean, it's it's um, I, we were talking off mic, but to to have something in your mind that you've wanted to do, because for me, it's not about the apparel, it's about the messaging. And we're going to be doing a lot. Um, this company that I'm working with, they have licenses for some of y'all's favorite athletes, people, some obscure things. We're going to do a, a pass the baton series. You know, like I want to use this clothes to send messages and mantras and keep us centered, you know, um, you know, growing up in the nineties with cross colors and Carl Kanai and, and FUBU, it was good to wear for us, by us, but what was, what happened next, you know, and what was sustainable? So, you know, we're working on a young, you know, youth line. Um, so kids can wear things. People ask, well, who is, um, uh, Sarah, uh, who, who is Ida B. Wells and who is, you know, um, who is Jim Thorpe really, you know, how about who, yeah, and and there'll be a story behind it that everybody will know and be able to talk about. So I'm looking forward that to the cultural and movement and memory. This is where we have to. It has to be for us by us. And the '90s, it's amazing, isn't it? The '80s and '90s are like another century. Well, they are technically another century. But to young people, um, I thought I heard you playing something as you were coming in. I expect you probably yeah. raise the name of this new ancestor in a minute who has virtually disappeared in some ways. Not to say virtually disappeared, but but go ahead. I, I mean, I, I suspect. <laughs> To that point, um, you know, we were talking about school and, you know, I teach, uh, as some of you know, at Hunter College and, you know, I, I give I give a gift to my students to to delve into their passions. And so once every semester, you know, there's kids that like music and there's one 
uh, young lady who's into 90s and 2000s R&B, you know, and she was born like 2010 or whatever. <laughs> was like, I was like, damn. I'm, I'm but yeah, so I said, how'd you get involved? And she said, my mom, my mom was playing, you know, she was playing Mary J. Blige and all this. So she's like, you know, dialed in to this genre. And I was thinking about today and how sad it is because when we were growing up, the radio would earworm us into a, into submission with a song that would play for the entire year. So, you know, we got introduced to, you know, Matt, you know of course, Michael Jackson and Prince and Donna Summers and, you know, Earth, Wind and Fire. But those songs became like songs in the key of life, indelibly etched into our childhood memories and psyches because they just played on loop. And now today, kids, you know, they're on Spotify or whatever, and they get to select you know, curate their own with no institutional knowledge. So I'm growing up with Jerry Butler and I'm growing up with Nina Simone. I, I'm yes. growing up, you know, because that's what my parents played and now the radio and now there's this mixture and you see the artists that were born out of that generation because they, they're able to draw. These kids don't have anything to draw on. So I played the, the well, they have They have everything to draw on, no focal points. <laughs> right, it's, just, it's chaos. It's just yes, chaos. Exactly. no centering. Um, I think Reese uh, Colbert put up a, a a whole thing. She said there was a whole genre of I'm I'm cheating music, you know. And she played Shaka Khan, and there's like me and Mrs. Jones, and like yep. there was all of this. Like, Philadelphia, that's right. Uh, <laughs> as we lay, and you know, so started adding to it, you know, and it's like Shirley Murdoch said, but yeah. instead we got. We should have counted the cost. Ooh. You know, that's your line. So, counted up the cost. <laughs> there was a whole genre, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And you know, even Stevie Wonder got into it. Part time in the as the backup singer. Same. As your male friends to ask for me. You hear when you hear Luther in the back. That's Luther on part-time love. No question. Yeah, Luther was singing back up with Stevie One because I kept thinking that sounded like Luther. And then I looked it up. It was like the first time I heard Luther singing back up for Roberta Flack with Donnie Hathaway and with uh people Bryson, Heaven Can Wear. That sounded like Luther. Luther was on backup, and of course, Luther was on backup with somebody you better talk about too. She's she's came back up for him. God, okay, so let's first say yeah, there's a whole genre. <laughs> I'm, I'm like this generation, you know, those twins that were listening to Phil Collins, you know, in the air at night, you know, and they were like, oh my God, you know, and it's got like 9 million views. I played that. And I was like, there's a whole opportunity for young people to bring back music, you know, for this generation because they don't have any grounding in it. But I'm like really grateful um, that I was born in a time to, to have, you know, to have that bridge stretch from, you know, all, you know, James Brown and them that wasn't my growing up music and all of the older, you know, uh, Frankie Lyman and then coming Frankie here Lyman. and then they remixed it into the nineties with the Isley brothers and Charlie Wilson and, you know, two thousands and, you know, you know, even all of Mary J. Blige is all from another generation. And it's like, it's new to that generation, but you know, it kept going. Pharrell, of course, Borrow, you know, from Marvin Gaye and, you know, other people, but you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's um, interesting. Uh, Roberta Flack, you brought up, who cannot no longer sing. Um, she has, yeah. A, yeah, I mean, it's like so sad, you know. Um, and then we just had an ancestor uh, that was announced today, Irene Cara, uh, who brought a fame and sparkle and uh, flash dance, won an Oscar and a, I think a Grammy for uh, what and a go glow. In fact, you know what's interesting because she wasn't, she didn't win it as an actress, it doesn't resonate 
but she's the second African person to win an Academy Award. The first was Hattie McDaniel. The second was Irene Cara for the song. You know what I'm saying? She didn't win as an actor, so we don't think about that. But she was the, and the second Latina. Rita Moreno won for West Side Story. The second Latina, Irene Cara. It's like we we think about her songs. We don't realize Irene Cara was a beast, yo. <laughs> well, she originally was gonna be on Fame as a dancer. How about that? And then they wrote the 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 role of Coco just for her, and that that gave us Debbie Allen. That's your connection. Come on, Debbie Debbie Allen, Coco Hernandez. I mean that that Coco Hernandez role. Yeah, but I mean, but you know, it's funny you talk about this question of institutions and how we have these connections, these genealogies. You know, her, her father was a musician. Her father was a jazz musician, Gaspar. I mean, that was her last name, Escalera, Irene Cara Escalera. Her father was out of Puerto Rico. Her mother was Cuban. She said they had me on. She had two older brothers who were ancestors. One was an opera singer, a whole opera singer. The other one was a professor of music and a, and a play. She said I've been playing. I was playing instruments since I was like six, seven years old. They had me out there working. She she did a uh, she did a Broadway show or maybe off Broadway with a bunch of other children. Two of the children who were in there, um, Giancarlo Esposito was one of the kids, like six, seven years old, right? And Stephanie Mills was in the cast. I mean, sorry, girl didn't just show up like, oh, we saw her singing on the subway. No, I'm a trained musician, dancer. She says she wrote, uh, what was the song? She wasn't in Flashdance, that's right. She wasn't, she, she sang the, the, the song for it though. Yeah, she said, she said when they came to her, they wanted to write the song and she said, I'm not in the movie. They said, well, no, we want you to write songs. She said, she wrote that song in four hours. <laughs> he said, I wasn't even in the movie, and then it just came and cleaned up. I actually drove the milk, and I remember this because I, you know, the you know, that song actually was one of the drivers. You know, it's like Ben, it's oh. like Michael Jackson. That oh, song yeah. drove that movie. Like, I know I, I asked, begged my mother to take me to see Ben because I thought that Michael Jackson was gonna be in the movie, and it, was, and it didn't come oh, up with like it's about some damn rats that are eating up. I was, like, so mad. I was scared and mad. Like, what was Michael Jackson? And where's the song? What? Like, what the? Yeah. So, no, it's it's um, why we're here. So, I'm as I'm talking through this and listening to you. We started this journey. Uh, and I was just telling you we're toddlers. You know, we're toddlers yeah. in in terms of formation. The thing that inspired me to like be so happy that you agreed to do this is that there's so much missing memory. There's so much missing information. Absolutely. And what you do so masterfully is, is weave in and connect those dots for us and make it really like, oh, this is why we should lean in. And, and so as we were building out narrative, it was like, all right, this is going to be like our library of Alexandria. Like, thousand years from now, people are going to be able to come in and click on things as we start to, you know, develop and know, know, not just here's a biography of somebody, but this is why this person's important. And in just five minutes, you gave us Irene Cara, things that I didn't, you know, and I grew up like, yes, Irene Cara. Me too. And well, we, we sincere. I mean, now, but when we stop and think about it, we remember. You remember she played uh, Merle Evers. No, when? Living. Merle Evers wrote her biography for Us to Living. Irene Cara played her in the, uh, I think it was her. She played the daughter. She didn't play my, yeah. And she also in Roots, the next generation, played Alex Kelly's mother. I yes, mean, exactly. people think about her for the songs. It's like, no, you got to see it. Irene Cara was in the original cast of Electric Company. 
She used to talk about Morgan Freeman and Bill Cosby on the set. She said, Morgan Freeman's this little skinny dude walking around, easy reader. See, we remember that. Your students, my students don't remember that. They look at Morgan Freeman now. It's like, no, Morgan Freeman was on Electric Company, and so was Irene Cara as a little girl. So like you said, I mean, people like that, and it's crazy because what was she, 62, 63? Yeah. So when somebody like that makes transition, and we talked about, remember we talked about this when we talked about Prince, maybe the first summer when we were getting into these for us everybody in that age range it marks a moment for us that is really institutional memory and we owe it to the young people to help them not only see these individuals because the social structure narrates them for the things they know them for and then the young people pick up on that no 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 all of your faves irene kara said i was trying to sound like donna summer so i mean when they said i sound like donna summer but well, that's what i'm trying to do i mean so young people don't know the connections because the social structure like you said just drops stuff in and now it has exploded any central place like a radio station or a television network television station or a newspaper and so now they just get to pick or at least they think they're picking because the algorithm is curating and so if they don't be again this space like you say our baby steps yeah. is the space where we start who are we to each other? But it requires, you know, sitting in, you know, because you know, as a journalist, you know, the background, the training, you know, yeah. you, you're 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 trained to pick those moments to tell a story. Mm. But if you don't have the if you don't have the knowledge, right? So who's writing these obituaries and who's writing these features and who's writing? They don't have the grounding in culture, you know. And I often say to you, mm. you know. And it's not actually true because I grew up in a household with ISIS papers and Asada were on our, you know, in our reading yes. library. So, you know, my, my father did infuse that in me. But, you know, there's so many of us that they hire that have no, you know, we are black and skin. And our, and some of our parents wanted us so badly to be block and to, you know, <laughs> elevate beyond the, you know, <laughs> beyond, you know, those people. You yes. know, there's this video circulating that I want to share with you. Maybe next week we'll do it. And it talks about Black people migrating to uh, L.A. And, uh, and, and there's this convening of Black people like these people, you know, we came here for this, you know, but they're coming and they're bare feet. And, you know, it's this, it's this kind of like classic. <laughs> it's, it's, I, 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 somebody dropped it in, in one of my timelines. I was like, I'm going I'm to pull this for another day because we do need to talk about class. And I was smiling because I know like my, my dad might've wanted that, wanted to shield me from like, you know, Newark and him growing up in like some rough, rough conditions. And, you know, uh, so, you know, we, we don't, you don't play with those kids. And I was like, but it's in my DNA. I can't even help it. I'm going to be sneaking across town and I'm going to say, with everybody and yeah. you're wrong. And like, even as a little kid, I was like, that don't feel right. I'm, I'm not gonna ostracize somebody because they were born in poverty. You know, that I know you're running away from the horrors of the trauma of you growing up with rats and roaches and living in a, in a you know, two bedrooms with, you know, eight children and being in a bed with your brothers and y'all teenagers, four people in one full size bed. Yeah, that's traumatic. And you never want me to feel that. And I appreciate it. At the same time, I'm, we can't shun people because of the conditions that they were raised in, because you got out, you know, and there's this whole, well, I got out and we've made this, and these people, they're uncouth. They don't know how to behave. Well, train them. If you, you gotta, you know, like, what are we doing? So even in this space, you know, the bridge of like, there's so many folk who are discovering this 
And it's not, you know, I don't, I hope we're not coming at it from this erudite elite space, but like it's accessible, but this knowledge has to be gotten so that we can put together, not run out with half a pieces of stuff, you know, and then like, oh, well, this is what, what I know. Cause you sat and watched the, you know, YouTube rabbit hole that told you about <laughs> a bunch of stuff, but there's no, there's no context and there's no beginning, you know? So I just like, you have centered the whole thing. I'm like, all right, so who came before this person? All right, so who came before this person? No. You know, you know. All right, so who started? All right, so before Spotswood Wood Robinson, there was no Thurgood Marshall. Okay, well, so Paulie Murray. Okay, let's you know, and and so it's it's really boom, 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 and then we can tell a full story. So LeBron James going out with a Madam C.J. Walker film. He, I know he thought he was doing a great thing, but you disrespected Andy Malone, who sat in the bush with somebody to teach about hair growth. She had the chemical formula that this woman and her, her marketing husband stole yes. and, out and marketed something that yes. they create. And Andy Malone was a millionaire, but you don't talk about that. And it wasn't colorism. But if you don't know that, then you're going to, oh, Madam C.J. Walker, because of marketing and media and the people telling stories that they have no foundational knowledge. And you just grab onto that thing because it's sexy. But yeah, we, we have to do the work and not, you know, to disrespect Madam C.J. Walker, who was amazing. No question. But to then also say Annie Malone was amazing and she wouldn't have had in her 40s an opportunity to even be a millionaire if that woman didn't set the framework to empower women, black women to become their own business businesses. And and I know there might have been somebody before Annie Malone, because I'm gonna keep pulling that thread till we get to the beginning. And it's gonna probably lead us to the continent because who was doing hair on the continent? Which country, you know, like Exactly. And that's that's the work. So when y'all go out to to Egypt uh, next summer, um, to Kemet, to Nubia, you know, that's the work, not for vacation and for sightseeing, but to continue to bring your brick to put together and piece together our story. So it doesn't start in 1619, doesn't even start in the 1500s. It starts thousands of years. I'm watching Black Adam. (laughs) They took it before. You know, I was like, okay. Like, did you see? You see how they mixed it up in there? Yeah, yeah. I'm not mad at it because, again, I'll be mad at it. There was a before. There was a before. There was a before. And if we don't center the before, then the after just becomes a chasing of please accept me. You ain't got don't you ain't got to never accept me. You ain't well, you ain't ain't race me. Come on now. Come on. Me. Nope. This is a word. This is a word on this indigenous people day weekend. This is a word <laughs> you ain't never got to accept me. Center. The before you just dropped another bar. I think we're gonna need some hoodies because I want that too. I'm gonna center the before and whatever you want to put on the back. You didn't see you just this is the Egyptians would call this sebait, right? The young people say bars or facts, but sebait it translates as teaching. That's a teaching. Center the before. Because you're right. When well, we want to start the beginning. Well, what date? Mm-mm, no, see, you always looking for numbers. We're looking for the beginning. In the beginning, in the beginning. Dot dot dot. It's very simple. This is the this was the fundamental. When I first came to Howard that first semester, they hired me late, so I didn't have a chance to pick my own textbooks, and I had to use John Hope Franklin, revered elder from slavery to freedom. There's a a new edition, the high school edition just came out. This you is got the, that. You just got that laying around, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, because well, I just got it. Uh, Ellen Brooks Higginbotham has taken over now. John Hope Franklin's ancestor. Beautiful book. Lots of information. Framework. Can't use it. Why? Because well, first of all, we start with the title. From slavery to freedom, I used to say when I first came at Howard, I said, "Okay, we're gonna do this. What if the book we need is from freedom?" Dot dot dot. You see, you started here, you end up here. Martin Luther King, 
and you call it progress. But what you're raising, I love that. Center the before. You center the before, you can't title a book like that. Because we didn't start with slavery. No human being did. And I mean, it's it's difficult, you know, because um, I'm watching colleagues and people who came before me and we have been conditioned and trained a certain kind of way to center, not just, not just, not just them. I mean, not just the now, but them. We have been conditioned to, to find them in every story so that they would be interested in the story. So we have to find their entry point in every story. And I'm like, no, we don't. No, we don't. It's perfectly okay. They'll be all right. They'll be all right. They'll figure it out or they won't, or they'll just miss out on all of this knowledge. But you can't be angry with the pursuit of truth. And if the pursuit of truth bothers you so much that you want to just completely obliterate anybody doing it, then I have to ask you how fragile, how fragile you are, you know, and how weak you are. And that's really what you're displaying is your weakness and your fragility, not your strength and power. You know, if you have to erase something in order to be as Tony Morrison, if you have to stand on somebody to be tall, you know, like that, that's everything. So we want to double down on this. Well, I mean, it is so funny. There was a brother who's an ancestor now. He's been ancestor about 10 years. Reggie Bryant. He was on a black radio station in uh, Philadelphia, WHAT. And he had a show that used to come on in the afternoons, Monday through Friday, called In Pursuit of Truth. Brilliant journalist, one of the founding members of the, uh, the uh, Society of Black Journalists, Philadelphia chapter. I'm sure this is a, and we talked about, I think we've mentioned this before. I don't know if you, if you, I'm trying to remember if you said whether you, I know you think you have rubbed shoulders with him, but I don't know if you knew him well. Um, Chuck Stone. Yeah. yeah. You, you, um, Asel Moore, Asel Moore, who was still around, worked for the Inquirer at the time. But uh, Reggie's show was called In Pursuit of Truth. And he would start every afternoon on this black radio station. And let me pause here and say that one of the many centering, I love this, center the before. When we center ourselves in time and space, like you said, everybody has a point of entry because everybody has memory. Everybody has a lineage. Everybody has a genealogy. So even last week, we started talking about those past books. All of the people who chimed in from all over the world, the Caribbean, and then we on YouTube, people started putting in where they were. And I mean, and, and this is the beauty of it. We all contribute. We all contribute. So anyway, uh, Reggie, his, his catchphrase in that show, which is a talk show, he said, it isn't what we know that's wrong. It's what we know that just ain't so. So his thing was, we may not ever get to the truth, but we're looking for the truth. So when you said that, Prof, it just, it just reminded me of that ancestor who is one of many, because we know Black Talk Radio which is a black thing. And, and we think about our African states framework, science and technology, the, the use of radio, like the use of newspaper, like the use of any form of broadcast media, that's a form of technology. We did not invent the radio. Um, although, well, let's not get into that. But in terms of communication, we use the technology to communicate. But what we're communicating, those ways of knowing, that cultural meaning making, that movement in memory, we know that in addition to the music, which is often... In the social structure we find ourselves in in the modern world the main thing that those who look at us as providers of spectacle really are interested in when they think of black radio they're thinking about music 
What they're not thinking about is, and those of you who are in Atlanta, for example, if you go over on Auburn Avenue, we know that the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee headquarters was right there in the same block as the black radio station. And whenever there was something going on, uh, Dr. King or one of the lieutenants from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference would go to that block to the black radio station and make the announcements about when the rally was or to spread the message on this because black people listen to the radio and it wasn't just for music. We know that the DJs, Georgie Woods in Philadelphia, for example, comes to mind, the great Georgie Woods. James Spady did a whole book on Georgie Woods, I'm Only a Man, but he wasn't alone. The DJs often were also, they also doubled as the news people. So something went on in the community, you heard it in Los Angeles, you heard it in New York, you heard it, I mean. Frankie you know, Crocker. Come on now, Frankie, no question. The Chief Rocker. <laughs> no, no, wait, what was his nickname? Was it Chief? Yeah, that was Chief Rocker. Yeah, Frank Chief Rocker. Rocker. Frank Rocker, no question. I mean, WLIB, WDAS in Philadelphia again. I mean, and so it's interesting, isn't it? Because even with us and between us and the young people who we have in our classrooms now, the 20-somethings, the teenagers, there's a generation. So there were moments. I think about Cosmic Kev in Philly or Funkmaster Flex in New York. When the OJ thing went down, I want to say, was it during the playoffs? Yeah, basketball. It was during the basketball playoffs. I, I was watching. I thought that's what it was, right? They had a split screen right here. Yeah. yeah. What is this Bronco? Right. Is that OJ? What is I remember, that? And all the hip hop DJs were narrating the chase at the same time as the game. I mean, so there's still, I mean, it doesn't look the same every generation, but there's still this notion that if you are of African descent in a public space, you have an additional obligation. And that's not to say that folks who aren't of African descent in those spaces don't feel like they have one, but the point you're raising and using the, the case of our most recent public ancestor, Irene Cara uh, Escalera, as an example, the New York Times may have posted since we went live an obituary but I hadn't seen it as of this morning on the site. It it'll be in the papers, maybe data, because you know how they do, you know better than I do, right? Then they write the obituary and then they wait. But for somebody like this, who was sudden and younger, they don't have one. They'll put a notice and then they'll write it later. But what they're going to do, and I'm fascinated, but there was a book, a book. There was a documentary about the New York Times obituary writers. It may be called Obit, mm. but it traced it, it followed maybe a half dozen of them and you know you you know their bylines if you read the new york times you know these obituary writers so when they get somebody like irene cara they're gonna say okay man irene cara they're gonna sign it to one of their top cats and then they're gonna spend they are right now while we're here they're calling everybody they done gone through they done put the whole billion dollar might in new york times newspaper mortgage they gonna, and when they whatever they write to what you just raised, Professor Hunter, and I've been that's why I'm looking down. I always take so you said, What'd you say journalists do? You pick these pieces, you pick these moments to tell a story, to narrate the narrative they generate that's going to be in the New York Times, the narrative in the Los Angeles Times, the narrative in Billboard, the narrative on the website of the Rolling Stone. None of it is going to sound like what we're talking about now. With many of the same facts, none of it is going to sound like this because that's not their narrative. They're not trying to narrate it. Perhaps they will mention. That Irene Cara had to sue her record company because they certainly will read the interviews with her where she talks about the fact that for the better part of a decade, eight or nine years, she was in a lawsuit, didn't get a penny, didn't get a penny for her Academy Award winning songs, didn't get a penny for her Grammy, two Grammy winning songs, didn't get a penny. They had her hostage, the, the, didn't have distribution, the record company, the Bee Gees had walked, 
had already walked. Uh, oh, what's the sister's name? Uh, if I can't have you, I don't want nobody. <laughs> if I can't have you, uh, 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 Yvonne Elman is they walked. Irene Kara stuck in the deal, didn't get money. Yeah, she finally won, but Yvonne Elman. Yvonne Elliman, that's the Yvonne Elliman. Thank you. If I can't have you, I don't want nobody, babe. I mean, you know, but the um, the point is that during that decade and then afterward, they put the murder mouth on her professionally. They told the rest of the record companies don't sign her. So Irene Kara, you want to, we want to know what happened to Irene Kara. The social structure happened to Irene Kara. Irene Kara came out of a governance formation. She came out of ways of knowing. If we want to talk about Afro-Latino, whatever that means, it doesn't mean she was one. She was one from two different islands between her mother and her father's bloodlines. And she came up in the music. Her father was known in salsa. She was performing with her daddy at seven, eight years old on the bandstand in New York. And I was going to say New York, New York, we call them New York, Puerto Ricans. They, they know they're black. No question. Come on now. They Come know on. they're black. They don't they don't make the distinction. And those of you who grew up in New York, New Jersey with. Spanish-speaking neighbors and relatives, they rock with us. Come on. And we rock with them. Yeah, there was no distinction except they put a little bit of more garlic in their fried chicken. <laughs> you, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I've read interviews and seen interviews with Irene Kara where she talks about coming of age during that period because she was born in, what, 62? I guess it would be 62. Mm, 59. 59? Yeah, she was 63. 63. I'm, I can't do the math. Okay. 59. So 69, 79. That's right. She came of age. She talks about coming of age during that period when hip hop mixed all its ingredients together. So it was nothing for her to come into that space and tap into that rhythm, tap into that cultural meaning making. And she brought it forth in her music. So, I mean, but, but, but the obituary in the New York Times is going to put front and center the songs. You see, it's going to put forward the songs and it's going to talk about the awards. It'll probably mention that she disappeared because she sued and had controversy. But what it's not going to say is that once she got her rights and the money started coming in, Irene Kara said, I'm semi-retired. I'm semi-retired. She she did go back out. Uh, she had a band, a group, Caramel something or other, where she performed. With, but but she said, I'm really, you know, I'm in Florida. I got my family around me. You know, the royalty checks come in. I don't really have to work. I make more money not working than working. And so I'm good. And we don't know how how and what the circumstances were for her to make transition. But I tell you, of all the Irene Kara songs that she is known for, you got the flash dance, you got fame, you got all of that coming together. One, you remember DC Cab? Yes, yes. Bill Maher is as corny now as he was when he was that knit tie wearing corny dude in DC Cab, right? Remember, she had the song in there, the dream. Yes, that's my favorite. That's my favorite Irene Kara. Irene Kara said. It's really great for me to be here. I've went over the pain and the fear. It's been so very hard through the years. Been looking through a rainbow of tears. And still I never really let go of the dream. I mean, it's a beautiful song. And when you hear about how she created these songs, she said, I'm talking about my life. It's really great for me to be here. It's 1983. I mean, and, 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 you know, people now what they'll write in the social structure obituaries, they'll talk about she was in disco and she was a dead. They'll probably mention her early years. But what you won't get is the feel. So what you said, why are you telling this story? You are picking this story to tell us a, a larger story. 
And that's what we're doing here because we're not doing this as two individuals. We're not doing this as a hundred or a thousand or two thousand or five or ten or twenty thousand as the as people keep going. We're doing it as a community because we have to do something that wouldn't we wouldn't have had to do if we hadn't been taken. We have to create a we. And the value of this space, which is increasing, we were talking before we uh, we came into the, the larger space about just the influence we're all having on each other and on folk who either aren't yet ready to come or trying to figure out what do we do? How do we do? This is what you do. Relax. Because uh, as Professor Hunter said, uh, we're centering the before and we don't care. We don't, you know, whether you like us, not like us, because when you're trying to pour and you are pouring clean glasses of water, you are a value added to humanity. And so what a beautiful thing. Wouldn't it be what a, a beautiful thing if the New York Times printed tomorrow Sunday edition of uh, an obituary of and even the language obituary? But we won't even get into that. An obituary of Irene Cara, where it started with a kind of grounding in who her family is, who her mom and daddy are. Who the people she worked with are. What she said about Bill Cosby. She said, Bill Cosby treated all the children on the set of Electric Company very well. I didn't see any of that stuff, this pervy stuff y'all talk. But see, that doesn't fit the story. What, what story are you trying to tell? What story are you trying to tell? I mean, go interview. I mean, you know, Mary Alice is an ancestor now. But some of the young people who were in the cast of Sparkle when she was in there, Sparkle Williams, talk about how, you know, they were teenagers. And they had to go to school four day, four hours a day, as they could work. So when you when you when you see an Irene Care, when you see any of us who are public facing, meaning social structure facing, meaning white facing, you're looking at someone who is being pulled into a story to be told by a structure that has certain uh, has agendas. Well, we have agendas too, but our first agenda is creating a we, because there wasn't a we before, and we've talked about that many times so yeah y'all check somewhere because i'm going from memory on uh for us to limit living i look here in the chat maybe i can look at i don't know if she played a um if she played merley or if she played uh what's up rena rena is uh rena is Mer merley and megger's daughter she's now over the merley and megger Evers uh foundation in jackson i want to say she played merley evers but at any rate yeah, because she kind of looked like Merle Evers. And, and Merle Evers was very young, of course, when 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 her Yeah, she did. She played Merle Evers. Played yeah. Merle Evers. Okay, good. Thank you. That was like, yeah, because I remember that. I mean, because yes. yeah. I don't remember. I mean, you know, it was 83. I wasn't leaning into the the to the Mega Evers story then. Oh, oh no, I, I don't I'm sure I wasn't either. I mean, this came, you know, as an adult when I declared war against white supremacy and said I would spend all of my rest of my breath trying to collect as much memory as possible and then hold up a mirror to folks. I'm sure I Somewhere in storage, I have the uh, deteriorating VHS of from us to living. <laughs> and you know, when you bring up Sparkle, there's no Dream Girl without Sparkle. Oh, no question about it. Broadway play, or the one, the, the one starring Shirley Ralph and them, and uh, and the one starring Beyonce and them. You know, uh, so even that, you think about Sparkle, it's like the batons being passed and picked up and run forward and remixed. The music. All of that has to be reclaimed. See, you know, you just said something, Prof. 
the gathering that will be necessary to place Irene Kara uh, Escalera in context, in a governance context, would be so beautiful. Mm. Not that there'll be a BT Awards thing where they sing the hits and right. but what would it look like if you made a few calls and your producers made a few calls and you got Giancarlo Esposito and Stephanie Mills to talk mm. about it with seven, eight year olds together in that play. What does it look like to get? In other words, this see the governance thing opens the whole thing up. Y'all want her for the four or five songs, you know, right? But see, as Anna Julia Cooper said, a generation, two, three generations before, when and where I enter, the race enters with me. So Irene Kara is not just a producer of some wildly popular songs and, and, and a triple threat and an actress and a dancer. No, she's a product of governance formations, ways of knowing cultural meaning making when you saw her literally in her work you heard movement and memory and the beautiful thing about it is that story will keep until it's told because i guarantee you right now nobody is reaching out to ask that she recorded with the harlem's children's choir when she was like eight years old now who's calling the harlem children's choir now for a quote not the new york times they worried about the grammys <laughs> <laughs> and the Academy Award, why? Because that's who she is to us. No, but yeah, but who is she to us though? Who's the us? The us is the Spanish-speaking African community. Hmm. Yeah. Because y'all want to come up with some beef between blacks and Latinos, like that's even two categories. What you gonna do, with Irene Cara? Well, first thing we're gonna drop her last name. She performed as Irene Cara. Okay, we'll put her back there. You know, put the Escalera back on it. Why you had to go get her father? who was known for the salsa, who was known for the music of Puerto Rico, who was known for Afro-Latin music, as you would call it. I mean, in other words, that would be something if you had like a, it wouldn't even, it would be a tribute. I guess that would be, I don't know. I mean, I'm obviously not a producer. That's, that's, your, that's another. Sure, but even as you're talking, cause you know, you, man, my, I, I will never have Alzheimer's messing with you. Cause you get, <laughs> no. you keep me firing off things that are probably dormant. And I'm sitting here going, Cause I had this conversation with somebody and I'm fighting with them and I'm like, stop thinking the way they taught you to think. Yes. I'm fighting with somebody. Cause I'm like, think about it this way. And they are like struggling with it. And mm. I said, we do documentaries and docu-series and tributes a certain kind of way because they set a blueprint. That's right. Or how they can market and get advertising. And all. Like it's, it's designed to make money. That's right. But what have you designed it? to make a difference what have you designed it like what would that look like and what you're talking about is like yeah whatever we do like this you know we could have done lower thirds and had it really beautiful i, mean, I have the means to be able to bring in a production crew and we can come in and film it in a nice place and yeah. you know we you know we're, we're gonna no, go no, one day you do that just for fun to see what it looked like but it wouldn't right but but why why keep it like this bro because it's real <laughs> authentic this is who we are we show up yes you know? <laughs> Faces washed, teeth brushed, let's yeah. talk because yeah. it's the information. And if you get caught up in all of the bells and whistles, if you can't watch this because it doesn't have the right thing, then you're not even supposed to, maybe this is not for you, you know? So I've purposefully decided to never, you know, make in class with car this anything more, you know, somebody's like, should it be, I wish this was a Roku channel. Okay. But Roku going to take it just like this. <laughs> if it, you know, it's like, why, why do we have to do something? Oh, because it, it has to, to do what? To get more people to watch? I mean, this started in the middle of a global crisis. And that 
out of out of which emerge that that is the foundation of of our strength we're not coming to you i mean it, it breaks my heart when i see and i know you've seen more of them than i have friends and colleagues who show up in the glossy joint after they've been with us the whole time and, even, and you look and you say i'm sure that suit is uncomfortable <laughs> look at the drinking is that is that rouge under your cheeks bro in other words, I mean the glossy joint. Like I was in the, uh, I was in the the newsstand a couple of days ago with uh, my man Stephen at the newsroom, talking about the World Cup, which is hilarious. And I think you should probably mention that now. Yes. The brother uh, Mbolo from uh, Sweden, no, from Cameroon. Did you see that one, Pra? I have. I'm. I'm. I got like the left corner of my right eye watching the. Yeah. Yeah. The no. 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 We, and I'm. I'm not watching it at all because you know uh, what's going on in Qatar. And or Qatar, in oh, fact, there's Qatar. no. I think I think it's pronounced Qatar. Well, well that's the thing. I just read a, a long article. I was the Financial Times where, where they were saying there's no right way to pronounce it because the the Arab in Arabic it would be one like Qatar, but but he said, whatever the guttural is, there are all kind of glosses of it. But okay. uh, you know the way that they, for the better part of a decade, had people engaged in virtual slave labor to re basically build whole cities for that. I'm good. And the fact that they should probably rename the World Cup the Africa Cup because the European <laughs> countries are Africans. I mean, which which brings me to the point. Um, I was talking to Stephen the other day about um, the brother Briel Mbolo. Mbolo plays for the, and my nephew would kill me. I don't know the positions. I mean, my, my nephew in England right now with the rosters in the Caribbean. Oz, yeah, I look out for Ellington. He out there playing soccer in, in the UK with the Africans. My sister and brother-in-law made sure he was with African families. So he, you know, he's good. Afro-Caribbean family. But um, uh, Mbolo scored the winning goal for Sweden. I think they won one nothing or one nil or whatever they call it against Cameroon. But he's from Cameroon. <laughs> Yo, it's so confusing. Yeah, but here's the crazy thing, though, Prof. This is the beautiful thing. He's a striker. He's a striker. He's a striker. Thank you. Striker, which would make sense. And then you probably see then, if you see the story, do you see what how he celebrated? He didn't celebrate. He said, you know, we won the game. Our, our job was to win the game. But these are my people on the other side. I'm not celebrating. They said he stood still with an apologetic frown on his face. How about, after that? How about that? How about that? And so me and Steven standing there talking. He's Kenyan. And we were talking. I said, "Bruh," or Baba, as I call him. I said, "Baba, what um, would any African play in Europe if the money were the same in Africa?" He said, "No, it's all about the money. It's all about the money. You're not going to Europe because you like the weather. You're going to Europe because Europe, as John Henry Clark said, that drained its sores on the continent of our birth." And then snatched us out and then came back down there looking for stuff and continues to mine, including mining talent, including athletic talent, has, as Walter Rodney wrote, has so, quote unquote, underdeveloped or had the infrastructure seized that you end up drawn into Europe. And Bolo, in that moment, and we were sitting there, we were standing there talking about how we seem as a people, and we know we're not a people, but again, we're creating we's. There is this kind of movement and this thing is almost like a pendulum it moves back and forth but there's a sense that we africans now this brother should have been jumping up and down in his uh blonde hair blue eye uh, teammates arms nah i'm cameroon and i said 
So what happened the next time it rolled around, he playing for Cameroon. And we stood there and started laughing. So I, I bought a bunch of, you know, I always buy the, the weeklies and the monthly stuff from him. And there's a long article in The Economist, this week's Economist. And I, I think I left the, 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 the bag in the car. Otherwise, I'll, But there's a long article on Senegal because Senegal is there too, right? Senegal is there. Cameroon is there. Uh, Ghana is there. Ghana scored yesterday, apparently. So the Africans are there in African countries. And of course, the Africans are there. Africa, also known as France, is one of the, because, you know, last time the Africans won the World Cup, they, they were playing for France. But at any rate, the um, the article was about how Senegal has these uh, soccer academies that are cropping up everywhere. And when my nephew, first time he went overseas, he's in Germany, he's in Spain, you know, they got these farm teams and you move up, move out. You know, they are, you know, they, they all live in Texas. And when he's here, like he trained with the Houston Dynamos, he, he played, played in their system. I can't, you know, at some point, you know, whenever his career is over, he gonna keep going to college in the fall, in the summer, instead of between some uh, fall and spring, instead of between semesters. Maybe I can get him to come uh, hang out with me at Howard, but because uh, you know, I don't know what the NC two A rules are, but you know. But at any rate, we will come to that in a minute, because well, in a minute. But the academies are in Europe, but now like the NBA got these academies in Africa. They done gone straight in. And then we know the points of entry are folks from the governor's formations. Hakeem Olajuwon was down in there, you know. Um, uh, what's the brother's name from Central Africa? Um, I always wave his finger. What's his name? Played for Georgetown. Um, Dikembe Mutombo. They have some academies too. Uh, you know, uh, Yanis Atatikompo. You know, he's Yoruba man, Nigerian, the Greek freak, whatever social structure. Take that and go to hell and take the rest of the people with the EU with you. But actually, the cover of this week's Economist is Europe being frozen out. And it's a picture of Europe with ice on it because, of course, the winter is coming. But um, and Russia ain't doing what it used to do. But th there's an article about the Senegalese academies. And it's talking about how all this talent, all this talent is showing up because that, of course, is the global game football you know not american football but global football so while people here watching nc2a or whatever playoffs coming super bowl whatever the world watching the so-called world cup it is a world cup not like a world series where it's american teams playing by the way coming up in a couple of months is the world series of baseball which the actual world plays so i can't wait that's one of my favorite things now you know i love baseball so to watch Puerto Rico to watch Dominican Republic to watch Venezuela and these are all the cats that play in white major league baseball during the uh, professional season series uh, season then they play in the world that's a real world series and to see the celebrations I mean this is absolutely cultural meaning making the stands everybody rocking the music is playing everything is beautiful anyway so in the world cup you see all these Africans playing. And this article in The Economist is talking about how they have these Senegalese academies. And so I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. I'm reading it. It's fascinating. Got it. He said, for the first time in World Cup participation, all the teams that are in the World Cup from the continent of Africa directly have African coaches. There has been a significant upgrade and proliferation of the women's teams. More women's teams participated in the Women's African Cup of Nations this year than at any time. So you see that beginning to, you know, take some root. And so I'm reading it. And then here's the punchline. Who is subsidizing Senegal's academies? 
French professional soccer. And they get top choice of whoever comes out as the best soccer players in the academy. Of course, you want a farm team. You want a farm team for your filthy criminal enterprise. And we talk about filthy criminal enterprise. Let's talk about FIFA. But that's a story for another day. Filthy criminal enterprises in bed. That's why they in Qatar in the first place. Criminal on criminal. And so I'm saying all that to say that as W.B. Du Bois said, the color line belts the world. We have to understand that this social structure is different depending on where you are in the world. But when you step back and look at the rhythms that are similar, they are also the same. Because the same impulse that would say, let's set up a soccer academy. Let's set up a, a football academy in Senegal. And then we'll sit back and see what the talent comes out. We'll take you. We'll take you. And then you're on the French national team. That's the same impulse in the slave economic concern, also known as the Southeastern Conference in American uh, college football. In uh, American professional, semi-professional athletics, also known as college football, that wants desperately to pry Deion Sanders out of Jackson, Mississippi, so that he can do his dance up and down the sideline of a white school. And so this hashtag trending last week that had a uh, hashtag coach prime and they put him in different uh, uh, coaching, uh, uh, what do you call those uh, polos? You know, here's Auburn, here's whatever, Texas Tech, whatever, I don't really care. They're all one big HBCU and one big HWCU as far as I'm concerned. But the reason they got to get him out of there is that, you know, if you stay there, Eddie George is at Tennessee State, you name it, as these black athletes, and now they got a new recruiting class coming in, and they're saying, you know, I saw a couple of guys this week sign with Jackson State. There's a problem. You got a problem. Because this could be the moment when there's a sea change. Imagine, as Stephen and I were standing there talking the other day, imagine if the African, more African players who are superstars stayed and played for their national teams on the continent of Africa or the teams of their homelands in Africa. Oh, this is going to be a problem. Right. Imagine as more and more women and men of African descent, young women and men of African descent, decide to play for South Carolina State instead of University of South Carolina or Alabama State instead of University of Alabama or Auburn or Jackson State instead of University of Mississippi. I don't give a damn who Lane Clifflin is, Jesus Christ, or white Jesus Christ, that is, or Aflac friendly coach of University of Alabama, who Nick Saban. Nobody cares. Because now, if that happens, now we got a problem. So I don't care. We got to throw some money at Deion. So then people say, well, you know, Deion Sanders can afford not to be paid at the level of a top coach. Maybe he can, maybe he can't. But here's the other thing I'm beginning to read now. And help me with this part because I don't really know the infrastructure. But it seems to me, one of the things I'm seeing now is people saying, well, Deion Sanders may, can afford to not make as much as he went somewhere else. But what they're going to do is throw all the money at his assistant coaches. Yeah, that, that's how that works. That's how it works, huh? Yeah, but, you know, I'm looking at, if someone said, uh, Vernon, in the chat, Dion ain't leaving. No, don't be so hasty. Don't um, be so hasty, right. You know, because we, let me come back in. What we do, what we tell ourselves, you know, and I've, I've had to had this, I've had to have this conversation with myself, is, you know, I could do so much good taking these white people's money. <laughs> you, you tell yourself that, right? Right. But there's an unspoken contract when you take the white people's money. You know, there's there's a understanding. Indeed. You know, and I've, and I've had a couple of times in my life where I've done that. And then like 
not just felt obligated, but there is an unspoken and then sometimes spoken contract. What about what you going to do? I had to F around and find out. Personally. <laughs> well, you say you had to F around and find it out. And found out, you know, so we, we both sit here with experiences, right? Okay. We're not just talking out of okay. you know, thin air. We've been okay. through some things, experienced some things. So, okay. you know, and that has informed how I move is directly in response to the things that I have uh, come up against, whether it's starting a publishing house, being in business with a Simon Schuster, having a million dollars from a venture capital firm called Bear Stearns to do a magazine or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. It puts you in these positions where, you know, when you F around enough, you know, and you and you aren't quote unquote successful, meaning, yes, I have all these bestsellers and all that. But I haven't broken out into because there was always kind of a resistance because I'm resistance. I'm going to fight for the things that I want to do. And then, then they snatch things and then they punish you. You know, uh, and then you're like, okay, so this is not really my money to do what I want with. It's your money with strings. Somebody in in Nubia's like contract. We don't do, we don't deal in contract. That's white people stuff, you know, because they have to guarantee, you know, and what I also understand about contracts is I have a contract, but there's also a clause in the contract at any point in time, the contract can be, you know, broken. Right. So is it a contract? <laughs> if, if you can break it because I did something that you didn't approve of, Ky- Kyrie just found out about his contract, right? Okay. Any time you can find out, F around, find out. So either you are free, meaning I'm free to do the things that I want to do. We we exchange commerce, money, or whatever for the goods and services that we exchange because this is, you know, so when I started my own situation, I don't deal in those because. Every contract can be broken, and that means lawyers get money. That's right. I'm not working to pay lawyers. That's right. <laughs> Period. That's so, right. yeah, no, this this is that that I don't know if our African brothers and sisters did that, but yeah, you know, no, I mean, I mean it, it, there was no infrastructure, and in, in that meaning, there was no global. I mean, Howard French, I just saw he's in um he just left Lagos. He just gave a talk, and I think he's headed back to Madrid and come back here, of course. And we very you know it was good that we got in conversation with your brother when we did because of course now the social structure is taking notice and that's kind of thing but you know we had a different we had different conversations with him but yeah i mean that infrastructure wasn't that's one of the points he makes in born in blackness there was no african infrastructure that was continental now yeah the french were fighting the english were fighting the portuguese and spanish were fighting but they had whether it be the catholic church whether it be the the agreements they came up with the asientos they had some form of loose coordination the dutch there's no corresponding thing happening in 16th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century Africa. Just like here in where we, where the two of us are right now in this global classroom, in what's called the United States, there was no, there was no continental consensus among the aboriginals. The, Europe was able to do what it did in part because they knew when they embarked what the criminal enterprise was they were embarking on. They set upon people who did not have a similar network. Otherwise, we wouldn't be speaking English. How did they get? There wasn't a they. This is very, I mean, when we get to the African States framework, when we get to framing question two, after we finish part one, we begin part two, we're going to look at that. The the assumptions we make about who we are, are all off. It isn't what we know. It's what we know that ain't just, that ain't so, as Reggie Bryant would say. So there wasn't a, but now what we're seeing is with somebody like Deion Sanders, we're seeing the possibility of a we forming. And it scares the hell out of I'm, As folks are talking, as you're talking, Prof, and you mentioned those folks, I'm looking in the chat, and 
Yeah, I mean, you know, we could set aside Jerry Jones. We know why you were out there uh, looking at looking at these uh, young kids who, you know, simply want to continue the quality education they were getting at the black school, at the school with more resources. They weren't there because they liked you, Jerry. And we know your attitude toward black people. You love them until you don't. But then again, I mean, we weren't planning on talking about this, but I've seen somebody out there trying to defend Jerry Brown, Jerry Jones for uh, being. Yeah, do that. What did you just say, Prof? They can take oh, it away. They can take on. it away. Well, you could say nothing unless oh, they, they, they reach out. And say, you have to say something. Well, what, what's the agreement? You, you say that oh, there's. Say that. You better. Yeah. I was sitting there. I was so disappointed because just like without sanctuary. Um, Lord All of those people in that crowd, he wasn't just there watching. He wasn't just there. He was there because he was bought into a system that he thought that those black kids didn't deserve to be there. Or he wouldn't have been there. No question. He wasn't just witnessing. You were no. there to intimidate them. No you question. were there and your 90 year, I don't give a damn how old you are. Yes. 60, 80 years can pass. You're still on a plantation being an overseer or excuse me, worse. You're, you're in a big house, boss. You are <laughs> doing the same thing that your ancestors did and right. this is who you are, which is why I can't support the NFL, no matter how much right. I love football or whatever. Right. But the idea, the idea that you're supporting these owners of black people come on now, running a ball, getting concussions, running mm -hmm. for the Senate with half a brain that you are out there supporting this system that doesn't support us at all. Put that? up a Rooney rule. This is how, you know, contracts are BS. There's a rule that states that you have to, you have to what? Interview, but you ain't got to hire. So given the choice, does, does Jerry Jones have a black coach? Nope. That I know of. I mean, I don't know. I don't keep really track of the Dallas Cowboys. Well, does he keep his, does he keep his uh, savages in, in line? Does he, hey. you know, and, and if you step out of line, T.O. or anybody, you know, do you, do you get punished? Do you get the whip? Do you get the lash? I just feel like at some point yep. we're going to have to decide some things. I think and, don't you think we're beginning to well we are we are but, but not uh, we black people could cripple the NFL which is the most oh. successful sport uh league period no question. no question stop watching and buying the the wearing wearing the brands well they getting ready I mean or, or, and that's why they got to stop Deion Sanders at all costs yes because if they start going there they don't mess with the nfl but now you have decided you're gonna bring all the supply to you it, it's it's the athletic equivalent of and by the way some cleanup stuff and thank you all because every week we talk about you know some of these things that have happened in the week between as we put in history and some other things and we don't get a chance to really dig dig deeper into some of the stuff we just kind of Put out there but of course last uh three weeks ago when the federal election was held in the united states the midterm elections and the legalizing cannabis uh, referenda passed in maryland did not pass in north and south dakota passed in missouri did not pass in arkansas um you know some of that is it was attributed to white nationalism and you know because but uh upon closer look one of the things that happened in places like our Ar Ar arkansas is that those who supported legalizing cannabis urged people not to vote against legalizing cannabis under the under the language of the referendum because unlike Maryland unlike California unlike some of these other states New York in fact there's a long article in the New York Times about this the other day those states passed referenda legalizing cannabis for you know personal consumption whatever and 
part of the referendum was the expungement of records for marijuana convictions. Those expungement, uh, that expungement language was not in the referenda in North and South Dakota, was not in the uh, language of the Arkansas referenda, was in the language of Missouri. So the people who were uh, pushing to legalize cannabis said, vote for it in Maryland, vote for it in Missouri. Ar what about Arkansas? Don't vote for it in Arkansas. Why? Because they didn't put expungement in. See, this is where the money hustle comes in. Right. Because once you legalize it. Like there are set aside, it's not large enough, but the reading, like I said, the Oracle in the Times, Maryland, uh, California, there are set asides for people who had prior con uh, convictions. They aren't nearly as extensive as they need to be. But if you've been convicted before possession or possession with intent to distribute, I mean, you're doing basically hand to hand herb hustling, as Buster Rhymes used to call it. You know, if you can get your money together, you can apply for a license. Now, that's the money they get. That's the back end where they mess you up on it. But I'm saying all that to say that um, these pushbacks are about the money. And I'm saying it in the context of what we're talking about now with sports, in particular college sports, in particular football, revenue generating sport at the college level, and Deion Sanders, because Deion Sanders represents a threat. The threat is you're going to cut off the, the slave labor at the source. See, no, look, there was a time, certainly during apartheid in this country, where James Shaq Harris, Ed Tutal Jones, Doug Williams, Walter Payton, the NFL didn't care that you went to Jackson State or Tennessee State or Grambling or Southern. They didn't care that, that uh, Jerry Rice graduated from Mississippi Valley State University. Now, they didn't take Willie Totten, Saleh Totten, who, as far as I'm concerned, is the best quarterback ever to throw a ball to Jerry Rice. Joe Montana, hell, you can go over there with the rest of them people because I, with my own eyes at the Indianapolis Circle City Classic, saw Jerry Rice and Willie Titan hang damn near a 70 spot on my team. <laughs> Jerry, Willie said like Titan was no joke, but he had to go to Canada because he came about 15 minutes after Cat named Warren Moon, who had to go to Canada. And he came about 15 seconds after Jefferson Street, Joe Gillum, who should have been the quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers, but he ended up having to go to Canada. That's where you had to go if you want to play quarterback. So they didn't draft Titan out of Mississippi Valley, but they took the receiver and he's in the Hall of Fame. The NFL didn't care about that position and now care less about where you went to school either, but you're about to mess up the money. I forget where that racist uh, Jerry Jones went, Oklahoma or somewhere. And I understand if you got to defend Jerry Jones because your master requires it. You that little dog at the RCA to, you know, listening to your master's voice. You got to do that because as you said, Prof, once they pull you in then they can take things away. And if they start taking things away, after you've gotten used to them, you'll come running to your master saying, what must I do to be saved? And so, well, this is what you're going to have. In fact, we're not even going to tell you what to do because it would look too unseemly. We're just going to sit back and see what you do. And you know what your master wants you to do. Jump out in front of him and take the bullet. But here's the problem. I don't care what Kyrie, uh, Kanye said or Kyrie said or anybody else. In the context of the social structure, what we've begun to see, again, this thing goes through rhythms. Regardless of whatever argument we're going to have with these brothers in a governance formation, you trying to cut their throats, which means you trying to cut our throats, which means we all agree on this. We against you. Now, whatever we're going to have this conversation, we'll have that too, publicly or privately. But we can all agree on this. Your interests, our interests ain't the same. So, Stephen A, brother, 
You can't say that, man. Because in social media, they're already putting together the list of five to 10 things he must do before he can be saved. Why? Because they're not doing it expecting him to do it. They're doing it because they clowning what the white boys tried to do to Kyrie. So Jerry Jones, in order for you to be reinstated, you must. And when you start seeing things like that, what your understanding is that that is a dimension of the we that forms in something that is ultimately unsustainable. In other words, opposition to the social structure that we find ourselves in when it oppresses us, that's unsustainable. We should not ever build identities based on who we are not. However, it is a useful nudge toward the conversations that we're having here because the we're having here conversations become, you know, we get over in Nubia one night, we can talk about the Hebrew Israelites, their origins, where they getting their stuff from, the arguments they have within each other. There's probably some Hebrew Israelites in here right now. But guess what? That's a governance conversation. It's not cancel culture. It's not condemnation. It's not. But what is happening, as we see with the Deion Sanders situation, I think is two things. And then we kind of kind of tie this into where we're going on Indigenous Peoples Day weekend. And that is two things. Number one, his son is there. You know, his family's in Jackson. He got his sons there. You know, it could be that he stays till Shakur graduates. Shadur, is that how he said? Not Shakur, Shadur. It could be. And name, image, and likeness is a factor that wasn't here before. Meaning what? You can now have your personal brand as a player. And that goes wherever you want. I think the brand of Jackson State may be on the verge of being a little stronger than the brand of old Miss. old Miss. I'm watching people, black people, who, with all due respect, might not be able to find the campus of Jackson State if they flew into Mega Riley, Wiley Evers Airport in Jackson, Mississippi. And Jackson ain't that big, but they ordering Jackson State gear. And I love how the HBCUs put an extra E on the word E, on the, art, on, on the word the, on the article the, because everybody does it. The, T-H-E-E, right? The Jackson State University, the Howard University, the Tennessee State University. I love it. But that the is not a misspelling. That's a gloss. That's cultural meaning making. We sticking it on. And in a couple of weeks, I think it's the weekend of the 16th, 17th of December, when Jackson State meets up with North Carolina Central in Atlanta at the Celebration Bowl, does anybody believe it's not going to be sold out? Because Jackson State University this year led the division, FCS, in attendance. Oh, oh, oh. Now, I went to one of them schools where the white boys tried to break us and put us in, uh, well, some Negro bourgeois lackeys who, um, some of whom were ancestors and whose names I won't even dignify by repeating, uh, under pressure from their masters, joined the Ohio Valley Conference. That would be Tennessee State which was an independent. Tennessee State in the historically black college annals of college football was in the in our governance formations behind the apartheid curtain, kind of similar to Notre Dame during before it had a conference affiliation. They were independent. So Tennessee State could play anybody, anybody in the black college world. And so they did. But then they pushed Tennessee State into the Ohio Valley Conference in the late 1980s we protested like hell. I was through my president that year, 1986-87. The commissioner of the OVC, who ended up being the commissioner of the Big Ten, Jim Delaney. Uh, I might as well name these people. No, I'm going to stop. Pause.
Good speech. I can see Jacob Carruthers in my head. Good speech. Let me keep focused. The first uh, athletic director at Tennessee State who advocated to join the Ohio Valley Conference is the one name I will mention, Gail Sayers. Now, y'all know they loved Gail Sayers. He was no Herschel Walker in terms of his, but you know, Gail Sayers, who's an ancestor. I am third. You remember um, the, uh, the book, the movie. Gail Sayers, you know, Chicago Bears. It made him athletic director at Tennessee State in part, you know, so he could be the one to usher us into the Ohio Valley Conference. And here's what would happen. Tennessee State football team would go to play one of the great powers of the South. I don't know. The University of Tennessee at Martin. Austin Pease. Yeah, you know, those, those huge, you know, athletic schools. Anyway, we show up with the aristocrat of band coming in 150, 200 deep with the black people going to and we all pay tickets to go in to the game. The band show up on the other side. Their fans are there. Oh, a shower in the land of cotton and the band marching all stiff. And they ain't never seen nothing like Tennessee State traveling the road show. Then it come time for Austin P to come to Nashville to play or UT Martin or whoever else, Eastern Illinois, to come to Nashville. They fans not coming. We won't get that money. We knew that was going to happen. Jackson State traveling, playing these black schools, the stadiums are full. And I saw in the chat, y'all talking smack. I love the set tripping. I believe there's only one HBCU with a lot of different locations. But when it come down to having to pick size, the ones we went to, we start putting our tribal colors on and get it in. All in good fun. Yes, they put an ass whooping on Florida a &M. And in the social structure, the people who picked the playoffs, the, the, the football championship series subdivision playoffs, did not select Florida a &M to be in the playoffs. Because they only lost a couple of times. And one of them was Jackson State. Well, they also didn't win the MEAC. North Carolina Central won the MEAC. So Central is going to be playing Jackson State in Atlanta in a couple of weeks at the Celebration Bowl. Some of you all in here right now are preparing a little bit later this afternoon. If you're watching this on a Saturday, if you're watching it on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, it's already happened. But we all know if you live in the governance formation, all the fam out there who are worldwide, who are all over in the UK and the, in the continent, you know, in, in other places in Europe, who are in Latin America, the Caribbean, you may or may not know that this uh, so-called Thanksgiving Day in the United States, this white nationalist so-called holiday, which we call Indigenous Peoples Now Weekend Day and Weekend, Indigenous Peoples Weekend was Day was yesterday, and then the weekend we just keep it going. I'm gonna talk more about that in a minute. You might not know that this is the annual the, pause for those of you who don't follow sports like this. Professor Hunter, you walk through this better than I could. I'm just going to do it very quickly. Every year, there's a college football playoff. In the playoffs, what they used to call 1AA as opposed to 1A, 1A is the real slave football factories. Ohio State University, Michigan, University of Alabama, Georgia, this kind of Texas. They, don't have, they just now have a playoff system with a limited number. In what they used to call one double A, now the football uh, subdivision, FCS, they have a playoff that involves maybe, I don't know, a dozen schools. I don't know how many, 16 schools. It's usually based on rankings. Florida AM wasn't picked. But here's why Jackson State is not in the FCS playoff. This is why Grambling and Southern can never be in the FCS playoffs. This is why South Carolina State can't be in the FCS playoffs. Two reasons. Number two, I mentioned in Atlanta, they have the HBCU National Championship. So them FCS uh, playoffs y'all got, y'all go do y'all little thing. Uh, who are you playing? 
I'm in Iceberg State University. I'm playing Prairie Grass University for the FCS play. Nobody wants to see that shit. Bo- Boo- Boo- Boise State, North Dakota, Nova, whatever. We're playing a game in Atlanta where the game is kind of incidental. Although Dion, I'm trying to bring that back. It's the band. It's going to Atlanta for the weekend. I mean, it's the whole thing. But that's number two. Number one, fam, global fam, there are a bunch of Africans as we speak hung over from last night, probably been there since they left their mama uh, table Thanksgiving night, and will be there through Sunday or maybe Monday in New Orleans. Because it's the Bayou Classic. <laughs> That's always Thanksgiving. Them Negroes from Grambling and Southern are all masked up in Louisiana having the time of their lives. And that is called the Bayou Classic. Uh, you got to understand. And some of y'all, in fact, oh, I should look in the chat now. Let me pull this up and see. Prof, have you ever been to the Bayou Classic? I don't know if you've ever been. I've never been. I would love to go one day. The Bayou Classic been going on since on Armistice Day, 1932. The Southern University Bushman. Yeah, I said it right. The Bushman. In fact, go get Thomas uh, uh, Leo's book called Bayou Classic. The rivalry between Grambling and Southern, except they weren't called Grambling and Southern the same way. We call 1932 Armistice Day. There was a game where the Southern University Bushmen, my God, Bushmen, traveled to northern Louisiana to take on the Louisiana Normal and Industrial Institute. Then a two-year school that would eventually become known as Grambling State University. Since 1932, they've been playing the Bayou Classic. They don't miss the Bayou Classic. So when approached many years when mostly Gramley, but also Southern was ranked in the national one double now FCS football. It's okay. Well, you might not well not invite them. Why? Cause the FCS playoffs takes place. Now we can't come to the FCS playoffs. Why? That's a very nice social structure thing. And we would like to win a national championship. Florida and them won a national championship one year. So like 1978, I think Rudy Hubbard and them won it. But at any rate, some of y'all know in the chat, Nubians. But we can't go. Why? It's a Bayou Classic. We don't miss the Bayou Classic. Grambling going to play Southern from now until the earth blow up from the sun exploding in supernova in New Orleans this weekend. And the Celebration Bowl has taken on a gloss. It's probably going to be sold out. So these people looking at Dion, that was number one, this, this kind of move toward these black spaces. And you're only helping it by trying to, in the words that, uh, my brother Nick Cannon used buck break black women and men if they get out of line and let whole white nationalists like Jerry Jones get a pass. That's no problem. We know who you are. See, the problem is you don't think we know who you are. We know who you are. We ain't mad. We ain't got no smoke for y'all. We just be clowning y'all. Now, one of us run out having heard his master's voice and try to get in front of his master. We're going to give you some smoke, bro. It's going to be some governance structure smoke. And you have to claw back your credibility if you can, because, you know, people kind of predict like, uh, you know, like clockwork when you're going to jump out in front of your master. But at any rate, the point is that we understand that you're making it easier for us to have space to come up with a we. Although we can't base the we on who we are not, it certainly is a strong push toward the conversation we need to have, which is how we build with each other. This is what I'm going to bring it now into Indigenous Peoples Day. 
But the second thing of the two I wanted to say is not only that push thing where we're seeing this kind of resurgence, black kids going to black colleges, thinking about black colleges. And I saw in the chat a couple of people talked about North Carolina A&T and Tennessee State. I'm going to talk about that, too, in a minute. But the most important thing is, if you think Deion Sanders stalking the sidelines at one of your white slave plantation style athletics football factories is going to bring the magic of an HBCU to that school, you're wrong. I don't even think they think that. I think they're trying to make sure that they don't put down a whole, they can try to put down a whole slave rebellion by people going to HBCUs. And I think they like Deion Sanders because he's entertaining. And if we know nothing else, we know that Africans entertaining enslavers is a staple of colonialism, a staple of settler colonialism. As Fred Douglas said in 1852, what to the slaves is the 4th of July. They who carried us off captive required of us a song. But you got to continue in that Bible verse because Douglas then says, how can we sing our song in a strange land? What you're going to find out is Deion Sanders can't sing that song on the sidelines in Texas, Alabama, Oklahoma. He can't sing that song on the sidelines of the slave economic concern, which you won't let him go to immediately. If he stays in Jackson State another two or three years, then the big boys start calling. Why? Because you're about to mess up. Now you got now it isn't just Jackson State with those players, it's Prairie View with those players. It's uh it's Grambling and Southern with those players again. Cause we, you know, it's not like we don't have players, but it's like now people start mm, 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 mm. and if you keep messing around holding people hostage and telling them they gotta say mother may I 50 times and give me 50 million dollars at your contract, ain't nobody gonna play for your funky teams. But at any rate, that's one thing. But how can we sing our song in a strange land? As Fred Douglas asks, you understand that if Deion Sanders comes and coaches your team, he not bringing the band. He not bringing the professors. He not bringing the alumni. He not bringing the cheerleaders. You don't want none of that. You just want him for entertainment purposes and to kneecap what you think you can kneecap, what you can't. The magic don't transfer, baby. The magic don't transfer. And I'm going to tell you as somebody like many of us in this space who went to and work at black colleges. See, it's one thing to go there to play sports. It's nothing to come on campus, look around in August, September and see all those beautiful black young women and men. See, you can't do that at Ohio State. I went to Ohio State, too. I know what y'all greet the black recruits with at the front of the school. I know where you take them on Saturday night. I know what parties you take them to. How do I know? Because my friends, my former students were those athletes. So we know, Professor Hunter, you know. You know where they take them. Well, guess what? That's a very different conversation when you run it up in a frat house at Ohio State or Michigan or Iowa or uh, University of Southern California. Yeah, you got a little dance team over you. It's very cute. But it's nothing when you run up in the fraternity house, the sorority house at two o'clock in the morning. And somehow you twisted your knee and you can't play. Like a brother who was the quarterback at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, about 30 years ago, who messed up his knee or something. Robinson, I think, was his name. Black UT like have little quarterbacks. In fact, they had a quarterback won the national championship. Um, um, what's his name? Uh, his brother played for the Giants. He, uh, uh, Peyton Manning. Wait, no, Peyton Manning never won a, a championship for the University of Tennessee. No, it was T. Martin, the black quarterback. But they ain't named the street in front of the stadium, Nathan Stadium in uh, racist UT Knoxville for him. They named it for... Uh, Manning, who never won nothing at the University of T. 
Tennessee. But at any rate, when the man messed up his knee, all of a sudden, he gets in trouble at the University of Tennessee. Well, if you're at Jackson State, if you're at Grambling or Southern, if you're at Tennessee State or Florida A&M, if you are at Howard University or Grambling, as I said, or at North Carolina A&T, you got a different conversation going on. The magic doesn't transfer. And so I'm hoping and expecting that at some point we will be able to regain our footing in this rhythm, this dance between plantation-style college athletics, HPCU, historically plantation colleges and universities, and maroon-style college athletics, historically maroon colleges and universities, maroons as in runaways, you know, them escape Negroes, them governance-structured Negroes. We call them HBCUs, black colleges and universities. That pendulum seems to be swimming back. And I don't even know if Coach Prime can stop the magic from forming at this point. I know his players, some of them might transfer if he goes somewhere else, but a bunch of them are going to be like, I ain't leaving this campus. Have you lost your mind? Have you seen the people who are now here in this campus? Some of you know what I'm talking about. So let's let's talk about this in the context of creating a we. Because this question that drives this whole thing is, can there be a we? When we start talking about African people, and out of what do we create a we? Can we create a we? It's not enough to be against something. Ultimately, what you just heard Professor Karen Hunter say, you got to center the before. What happens when the before was not a we, but a place with a lot of we's? And then we went through a, an experience which created a we in large measure around two things, as we talk about in the Africana Studies framework, opposing oppression which is one way to create identity, blackness in ways. And looking at each other and saying, these things are different between us, but we will make an alliance. And these things are very similar or virtually the same. We'll create an identity. That's the we. And for that, we're going to kind of turn toward for the last few minutes together on this Indigenous Peoples Day weekend, our kin, our First Nations kin, the Indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere. I think about this in the context of Africans who are from the continent of Africa or from places where African people are the majority. Haiti, Jamaica, Trinidad, Tobago, you name it. All the countries in Africa. Yes, including the Maghreb. Because even though those 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 areas look a little different, they're still from the continent. I'm not talking about if you came out of your mother's womb on the continent. Shout out to Elon Musk, chef's kiss racist. Ain't talking about you. I'm talking about the Africans. And no, you're not an African. We're not talking geography now, not exclusively. We're talking about the combination of geography and culture. And for that, you're disqualified. The indigenous people of any place are not just from that physical place. They are from an unbroken genealogy of cultural meaning making. That's why uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo, his brothers, his father and mother, his family are not Greek. They could be born in Greece, but they are not Greek. They are Greek. They could be Greek citizens, which you finally gave him after he got famous and you shame. Well, what about the rest of them Africans up there? Well, if you can kick a soccer ball, maybe we'll let you play for the German national team. Or, and in that moment, maybe you'll be like Briel and Bolo if you play for Sweden. You'll score the goal that lets your lily white nation, country, 
which is closer to a nation, kind of uh, uh, kind of homogenous culturally, continue in the World Cup, but you ain't celebrating because you Cameroonian. And even Cameroon is a gloss, a label, a flag, some lines, because if you dig beneath Cameroon, what are you? He's going to tell you he's, he's some mother's son. And he's going to tell you the languages he speaks. And those languages, those first languages are African languages. And it's very important to understand then that geography is only one part of the equation. The other part of the equation is what is your cultural genealogy? What is your, uh, what is your language? What is your memory? What is the connections that ground you? So no, Elon Musk, you Afrikaner, or whatever you are, you're not an African. You just happen to be born there. As Malcolm X said, if a cat has kittens in the oven, they don't make the kittens biscuits. I wrote a whole article for it by man James Conyers many years ago. I think it's 2006, 2007. You know, and a reader he did on Malcolm X, James Conyers. The the name of the article was "You Don't Call the Kittens Biscuits." Malcolm X and and the theorization of Africana studies. One of the roots of the conceptual categories framework. So let's get into this by using the indigenous people, because the people of Africa are indigenous to the continent of Africa. Well, the people of the Western Hemisphere who are indigenous to this continent. North America, Latin America, Caribbean America, South America, so to speak, the whole hemisphere. Well, those people are in mourning this week. They were in mourning on Tuesday, uh, on Thursday, so-called Thanksgiving, you see. And if I'm in this area, I try to get down to the National Museum of the American Indian on Thanksgiving, so-called Thanksgiving holiday. And I go spend some time in that museum. I love that museum. That museum is a museum that gestures toward, evokes, is in dialogue with the human beings of the Western Hemisphere, not just of the United States, the indigenous people of the hemisphere. It makes it different. And it's a beautiful thing. I'm a shout out to all those people down there. And I was down there on Thursday. I always go to the bookstore. And this is a beautiful children's book. Kipunumuk. Kipunumuk. Weachumun's Thanksgiving story. This is a very interesting little children's book. It was uh, written by Danielle Greendeer, who is a citizen of the Mashapee uh, Wampanoag Nation works in indigenous arts, cultural perpetuation, and food sovereignty. She lives in Mashpee, Massachusetts. Anthony Perry, who is a Chickasaw citizen and author of Chula the Fox, an award-winning middle-grade historical fiction book. He lives in London, England. We're going to start talking about the we. You understand? I've already named two different nations of people. Let's put two more nations in. Alexis Bunton worked on this book. She is Yupik and Yuangan. She authored the award-winning nonfiction book, So How Long Have You Been Native? <laughs> Life as an Alaska Native Tour Guide. She lives in Monterey, California. By the way, uh, an indigenous woman just won election to the uh, federal legislature, United States Congress. They called the election for her. She'll be, she's the one who beat Sarah Palin in the special election. She's won a full two-year term as a congressperson. She'll be coming to D.C. She's not already here. And finally, the illustrator, Gary Meacher Sr., He's Ashinabi. He's born on a Long Plains Reserve in southern Manitoba, Canada. His style is reminiscent of the Plains style of art and evokes the Eastern Woodlands tradition. He lives in Connecticut and this is his first picture book. They tell the story of the first so-called Thanksgiving, but they tell it from the people. Weachwanun, 
That means corn. Here, kipun umuk, that means harvest. 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 Corn's Thanksgiving story. Corn? Yeah, because they start with indigenous ways of knowing. The Wampanoag were the, um, the first peoples who these invaders called pilgrims encountered. In fact, let me just read this. It's called Before You Begin. In other words, you're a child. I'm going to read this. You're an adult. Your parent won't get this book. These indigenous people say, before you begin, this is the tale of the harvest feast shared by the newcomers and the Wampanoag people in 1621. The newcomers arrived in what is now Plymouth, Massachusetts and colonized the ancestral homeland of the Wampanoag tribes. At the time of the first Thanksgiving, many tribes lived in the same area. They are often known as Indians or Native Americans. Gotta love, love, see? This is what happened when you start at the beginning, yo. In this story, we call them first peoples. So what they do? They started with the name of the people, Wampanoag. Then they said, just what the social structure call them, Indians or Native Americans. Then they said, from our governance formation, we're going to use language, but we're not going to take it from the social structure, but we will make a bridge so we can have this conversation. In this story, we'll call them first peoples. That ain't what they would have called themselves. We told you what they called themselves, and we told you what you call them, but we don't call them this because we're going to let y'all read this together. We call them first peoples because they were the first to live on this land. The Wampanoag people had taken care of their land and tended their gardens for at least 12,000 years. Karen Hunter said, center the beginning. 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 From slavery. From slavery? Are you serious right now? Anyway, no problem. Great scholars, great people. But as John Clark said, if you start your history with slavery, everything since then looks like progress. No wonder you celebrate Barack Obama because that's the first Negro to give a speech. You've been talking since vocal cords. Center the beginning. Let's continue. The Wampanoag people hunt, fish, and raise the three sisters. The three sisters. Who are the three sisters? Corn. That's Weechamanoon. Corn. Beans and squash. Over time, first peoples developed deep knowledge about the ways that many plants, often called medicine, help bodies and minds stay healthy. Then they put a glossary. You're going to learn some of our language here. Ways of knowing. Language is a way of knowing. Language carries culture. So if you're a five-year-old reading this book, or if you're a 35-year-old reading to your daughter or son, let's get some words down, and we're going to let you pronounce them. Kipunchumu time of harvest. Go down to the bottom. Weachumun, corn. Wampanoag, a first people's tribe, means people of the first light. Pilgrim. Now, I'm going to pause here. I'm going to come back to the book. What happens when the weeds collide? We got to understand. This is a morning weekend. For the indigenous people. We're going to come back to the book in a minute. What happens when you can't escape a social structure that pulls you in and then wants to rename you for its purposes? That is the battleground called education. That's what schooling is for. You know, there's a there's a new exhibit at, a newer exhibit at the National Museum of the American Indian called, they just, they just dedicated this. 
there two years ago, but it was during COVID. So they just had the dedication a couple of weeks ago. I was talking to the staff when I was down there Thursday, stayed there and had a beautiful conversation, just listening to them talk about this. Uh, they're editing the footage. Some of it is up on the Smithsonian website. If you look, this is the commemorative book for the National Native American Veterans Memorial, National Museum of the American Indian. This is on the grounds of the NMAI. It's a beautiful, beautiful exhibit. Ah, beautiful example, beautiful memorial. So we ask ourselves, why in the hell, if you're Native American, would you join the military? Why is this sister there? Now you gotta love it, right? This is a collision of social structure and governance. And the governance in her is represented in ways of knowing science, technology, moving in memory, cultural meaning making. She is in military dress. She got this old raggedy ass flag over here, but what's in her hair? You see that feather? Come on now. The title of this book, which was published in another form, and I had this book in the other form, but I wanted this one because this is a commemorative volume. Why We Serve Native Americans in the United States Armed Forces. And there's a companion exhibit, which is just very beautiful. Uh, this was published uh, two years ago. <laughs> just, I mean, every page has got artwork. Then they do these long essays. Terry Greaves who is Kiowa, did a piece called Prayer Blanket. Why do we serve? That blanket says it all. We defended ourselves before y'all came. And if defend, if making sure the Germans don't get over here and mess with us, means I got to get a rifle and join your army, and I got to give you battle strategies to help us beat them, like the Navajo cold talkers, then I'll do that. Why? I'm defending my territory. That's what the Native American veterans I've talked to, or more importantly, listened to, have always said to me. It's a consistent answer. And this is an excellent volume because it goes through cultures of war. I love how they start this volume. Cultures of war, they talk about, in fact, let me just show you a few pictures of these cats in the military. This is the Alaska Territorial Guard. They were recruited, women, men, children, to flank during World War II in case Japanese came over and sent these balloons over, surveillance balloons, whatever they were doing. They said, now nah, we got to protect that. Now we can debate and talk about the wars, but these people defending their homeland, not the flag of the United States. Give me the flag if it means I get the gun with it and the uniform, no problem if it means if I get the gun with it. And I'm going to defend because they're not coming taking my land. In fact, if I had this when you came, I wouldn't be speaking English, but we got to compromise. I'm a first person. Actually, I'm Navajo. I'm Lakota. Yeah, yeah. I'm Comanche. But, you know, first person's fine if you give me the gun. Flag, whatever. Yeah, okay. It's very nice. But there are cultures. You go to Navajo cold talkers. Y'all understand what we're saying. You never did. Now you want us to talk to each other, huh? And to teach you. Oh, man. My man, um, Dan Wopus, uh, Walpus, who was uh, in <laughs> the Navy took this picture. It says it all. Boy, they had these at a little bighorn. Now, of course, you know, there's a great exhibit on the third floor of the National Museum of the American Indian called Americans, where it talks about how indigenous people are all through this old made-up-ass culture called American culture. They name all the Apache helicopter. They name all this stuff they name for Native Americans, right? But here, Alexander Harris wrote an excellent piece called Cultures of War, where they talk about the warrior tradition among indigenous people. It says what? The warrior tradition. Few concepts have had such an overarching impact on the experiences and identity of Native peoples in the United States. In many ways, and for many indigenous cultures, traditions concerning war have been intrinsic to daily life for many generations. 
beyond fighting, beyond fighting. Warriors cared for their community and helped in times of difficulty. They did what was necessary to ensure their people's survival, including laying down their lives. These traditions are not a simplified, monolithic warrior trope. In other words, don't compare this with Thor and all them white boys in the, and the Norsemen and all that stuff y'all was doing over there, William the Conqueror. Don't compare this to Braveheart. No. Goes on and says, these traditions are not a simplified monolithic warrior trope, however, but complex and diverse systems integrated with the rest of indigenous worldviews and values of their times. Tribal traditions, for war or otherwise, are not static, but have evolved over time. Right. Adapting to changing life ways and circumstances. Indigenous practices, social, spiritual, and tactical surrounding war have both changed and endured over the course of history. And then they go through the whole question of culture. You can't reduce the cultures of thousands of different groups in a whole hemisphere to a one book, but you can evoke the fact that you can't and then ground it somewhere else. Karen Hunter just told center the before. And then you can go through the wars of the United States. Promise it. Look, 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 look at chap. Look at this next chapter. The Promise and Peril of Alliance from Contact to 1814. First of all, y'all liars and the truth ain't in you. I picked up another book while I was there. I didn't have a copy of this one. This is uh, Chief Seattle and the town that took his name, how they lied to Chief Seattle and the Nez Pierce folk. And by the way, if y'all go online, you'll see why, or why we serve. It's not this book. This book is more expensive. While we serve, you can get kind of cheaply. This is, you can get cheaper even more. This is the National Africa, Native American Veterans Memorial Souvenir Book. You can get it from the National Museum of the American Indian. And some of what's talked about in here is in a, here in a much reduced section, but it's important. And um, I mentioned this because all of these treaties, they broke. So they start with who they are to each other. Then they go through the encounter with the social structure. And then they talk about the next chapter, the Indian Civil War, choosing sides. Africans sold Africans into slavery. Slow your roll. There is a colonizing presence here there's a colonial presence here and we got to make some decisions because our first obligation is to each other and ourselves if there's no overarching we the we's form around family and community this is what we've been talking about uh, when we start talking about the governance structure when we finished uh, last monday and then on this monday we're starting ways of knowing in the african studies class in nubia but we talked for two weeks about governance who we are to each other that we shrinks depending on what's surrounding it and so they don't shy away from the conflicts, which are engendered in part, in principal part, during settler colonialism by external factors. When we say black people sold black people into slavery, first of all, they weren't black. There's no such thing as black. That is a phrase that came from what's the first thing. It started mm -mm, start at the beginning now. Center the before. The people you're talking about weren't one people. And the external factor is what beset this thing and set this kind of attack on, per, on point to this day, and then we sit up and let surrender our children to schools where they back map this foolishness because they begin, and by they, I mean Europe, I mean whiteness, they centered there before, which is why your children can tell you everything about Beowulf, Canterbury Tales, William Shakespeare, tell you about the Queen of England and all that, and can't tell you one damn thing about their great grandparents. They were some from down south. Or what their ancestors were doing when the Queen of England rose up out of her two time a year bath. Anyway, we're going to stop. Indian Wars, Indian Scouts, Spanish American War, World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, War and Peace, Conflicts in the Middle East, Honoring the Legacy of Service. Then they come down through. Why are you fighting? You invaded my homeland, and now, and, and while I'm fighting you, liar, I'm going to get these guns and keep these other people out of it before I got to fight them too. 
it's not that hard, but it's also very complicated. I brought it up to say that you're not going to get this history in school. None of us did. The fear is that ultimately the place where many people who are in this room right now live, the United States of America, which is not a nation. I'll say that until the day I draw my last breath. And then from the ancestral realm, our nation, who is us? Who is we? There ain't no our nation. No, there's no our nation. What there is, is a social structure organized around the nation state, organized around artificial boundaries and the concept of citizenship, which in is many ways anti-community. And once you draw on that, there's exclusion. Inclusion and exclusion and legal enforcement of exclusion and inclusion. Now, how do you keep it together? You keep trying to make a we by forcing people into a narrative which is not in pursuit of truth, but in pursuit of a we that you can continue to exploit. What do I mean by that? There is a national museum of the American Indian in the United States of America. American Indian, not a phrase they would have used. But we here now. So what else going to do? Well, there are we's in indigenous America like there are we's on the continent of Africa. And those we's, out of those we's can be generated at least a momentum for a larger set of we's that doesn't rely on what we are not. I hate that Southern University in 1932 when they played the first Bayou Classic called themselves the Bushmen. But you know why they were called the Bushmen? Because them Europeans in this country, whether it be Jerry, white nationalists, Defenders notwithstanding, Jones, or anybody else, you're a Bushman. And a Bushman was considered an insult. It's like the N-word, the Bushman. The Bushman, the Hottentots. That's not what they call themselves. Why you say Hottentot? Because you can't say Kossa. And because you can't say Kossa, you just start making click sounds like they make, and then it came in and Hottentot. Bushman? Why it's the Bush? Really? You want to talk about the Bush? Let's go where were you from? Where's your bathroom, man? Did y'all did it did y'all bathe this month? Yeah, we go to the river and yeah, there's bush there, but what your bush clearly you're not using it. I, it's cold up here. I, I get why y'all yeah, I mean no no shade, no judgment. But what you're not gonna do is make me somehow different because I'm different, rank humanity, put yourself at the center and me on the periphery. So the Southern University it was called a Bushman in 1932. My God. However, in 2022, when you come to the United States. They got a national story they want you to adopt, and that is the battleground of education. We're going to start winding this to a close now with these hillbillies in Tennessee and North Carolina and these HBCUs that they want to get into line. Um, you go into any immigration and nationalization uh, office, and they can give you a set of these in a lot of languages. This is the one in Spanish, right? This is the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services flashcards for you taking the citizenship test which you can take in your native language. A lot of people took it in Spanish. I like these cards because they remind you that there is no we. Wait, wait, Doc, but speak English. Isn't that, is that, is that our national language? But see, no. Prof, this is a great question you're asking. Is it important whether you speak English or not? Absolutely to a white nationalist. Is it more important than what story you tell with your indigenous language? Never. So these white nationalists, the MAGA people, or as uh, I don't know, whatever that adjective that Biden and them put on it, 
They are they are caught up in the language. Meanwhile, the true architects of white nationalism understand that if you put it in Spanish, you can tell the same lie. The same lie just in Spanish. Let's look at it. <laughs> what is the supreme law of the nation? La Constitution. Okay. What is the Constitution? Well, the Constitution gives you, establishes the government, establishes the rights, establishes yourself. Okay, very good. Um, who are the people for the, whom the Constitution is for? Nosotros, el pueblo. We the people. So it's in Spanish, but what are the amendments? Well, we got these amendments here. Okay, it's very nice. Uh, where where do your rights come from? They come from the Bill of Rights. See, they telling the narrative, and so Spanish don't matter. It's what are your freedoms? Oh, we got freedom of expression, religion, uh, assembly. Okay, you don't see privacy there, do you? Now, nah, because that racist uh, Sam Lolito and his and his, and his buddy Clarence Thomas kicked the teeth out of that. Um, how many amendments are there? Now watch these Latinos who amended the Constitution. They're 27. See these two Latinos? Wait, they aren't Latinos. Oh, that's that's Elizabeth K. Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. It don't matter if it's English or Spanish. Well, what is the Declaration of Independence? <gasps> and there go your master. Not now one of them, indigenous. See, you can talk about he's George Washington. You're not my dad. Uh-uh. To take the test <laughs> to be a citizen, that's my dad. Now, I'm not going to go through all these because there are there are probably a hundred. No, actually, there are a hundred of them right on the dot. But I'm going to stop at a couple so you can get a sense of uh, what. Uh, uh, let me see here. Let me see. Let's talk about a couple. Let's go to card number 32. Where'd you get these cards, Doc? You can get it at any U.S. citizen. Anybody can get them. U.S. Citizenship Immigration Service. Walk in and walk in them. You can get them in Chinese. You can get them in Korean. I took the ones in Spanish because it helped me brush up on my Spanish a little bit till I get some time to really get down in the language, you mean coming to deal with people. And it's a great example when people try to tell you some lie like, oh, you know, we, we're multicultural. You're not multicultural. You gave, these, you gave this in the language of the colonizer, by the way, because that ain't the language of Latin America is not Spanish. Spanish is a colonial language too. You see the young man who's playing the Moor in Black Panther. He been making that case all along. It's a damn shame. He say that you got African people in the United States who made a movie, got the license to make a movie, and they've done more for indigenous people in Spanish-speaking uh, popular culture in movies than any of the Spanish-speaking people in Hollywood. Because when they say Latino, they mean white Latino. No shade, just saying. Them the darkest. Like the darkest indigenous people you've ever seen in the history of Hollywood in one movie, Black Panther, because there's a gloss of solidarity there. So let me let me not go. Oh, wait. Oh, here goes one of my favorites. Here's one of my favorites here, if I can find it. Yeah, here we go. This is number 91. What is the number of territories in uh, the United States? Here go the colonies. Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands, Samoa. Well, they left off... Uh, they left off DC. Mm. <laughs> Again, the narrative, very important. Oh man, I could go through. They got one Martin Luther King, the capital of the United States. Uh, oh, look, watch this. Here go the settler colonial. Why are there 13 uh, stripes on the uh, on the bandera, on the flag? 
because they represent the 13 colonies. They even put the colonialism in. You got to take the test now. If you take it in Spanish, that's great. And the hillbillies going to rage and say they racist. But at the end of the day, I don't even go through it. They got Martin Luther King. But it's mostly white narrative. You said it yourself, Prof, at the beginning. Why are you identifying these facts? Because you're trying to tell a story. And if you're going to put your hand up and get to stay here, as opposed to us stopping you at the border that we made up anyway, that we crossed you with the border, and people running to get that last minute uh, cranberry sauce or head of cabbage or whatever they got at the store, realizing that people who speak Spanish picked most of that stuff for slave wages. And that's how, I, and it got to your table later. But hey, let's all give thanks. The indigenous people now got to take a test to live somewhere that they were before the people came. Now, let me finish with the children's book and then I'm going to finish with the Tennessee and North Carolina thing. I thought maybe we could read this book together, but I, the thing I love about this book, the children are out with their grandmother and the, the little girl Maple says, I love your garden this time of year, said Maple. Oh, by the way, I should show you all. Maple and Quill, the children in this, they based on real life people. <laughs> I love this little book. <laughs> Meet Maple and Quill. The real Maple and Quill are Masha P. Wapanah kids who live in Masha P. Massachusetts. In this photo, Maple is four, Quill is two, and baby Tulsi is 12 months old. Maple likes to pick flowers with her mom. Quill likes to fish with his dad. They both love to spend time listening to their grandmother. Nokomis, tell them Wapanah stories. You ain't got to beat people over the head. Who are we to each other? We want everybody to buy this book on Thanksgiving. And let us tell you about Thanksgiving. This book here, they the animals talk to them. Witcher Moon stretched her weary ears toward the sky. Who are these new people? Remember, Witcher Moon mean corn. The three sisters, beans, corn, squash. Are they people? They are spirits, every living thing. Ways of knowing. You want a children's book for African people? We were not born on the water. Two winters have passed. Since many of the first peoples who cared for Weecher Moon passed on to the spirit world, those who were not taken by sickness found new homes to ease their heavy hearts and rebuild their lives. Weecher Moon feared this winter would be her last. Corn called upon Fox for help. Fox looked up at Weecher Moon. Should we trust these newcomers, he asked? Stay close and watch what they do. Corn telling the Fox, these white people, I'm scared. Why? Because they don't know what they're doing. You see, in Wampanoag, you plant the three sisters together and they nourish each other and the soil and you don't have to keep burning stuff and, and the soil don't go fallow. That's how you farm. Europe, clear off all the land, burn shit and just plant this here, plant this here, plant this here. They looking like, what the hell science and technology is that? That is what you do when you don't know what you're doing. Corn is nervous. So corn talked to Fox. Fox said, should we trust him? Corn said, just watch him. So fall turns to winter. Witcher Moon and the other plants fell asleep. Fox watched the newcomers come ashore. He watched as they made their way into the forest. He watched them enter an abandoned Wetu village. He watched them take a cooking pot and a, and a basket of Witcher Moon seeds. Don't take us away, the seeds cried. We're waiting for the first peoples to come back in the spring to prepare our beds. We must grow first. But the newcomers could not hear the seeds. Their ears did not know the voices of the land. 
Now here they are now having torn up the whole damn world talking about renewable energy and sustainable energy and clean energy. You wouldn't even have to do that if you could have heard the voices of the land. We'd have a different kind of technology. And no, I'm not talking about the Afrofuturistic Wakanda, which is not real. I'm talking about the literal ways that humanity have been in the world for millennia trying to figure this out. As Karen Hunter said, you censored it before. I love this because it's just a children's story, but every line got the indictment, but not. And so then what happens is I'm not going to go through the whole thing. I'm just going to go and say at this point, the fox, winter turns to spring. Fox returned to share what he had seen. He telling the first people, here go Fox telling them. Fox say the newcomers are hungry, Fox told the three sisters. They took wheat and moon seeds, but they don't know how to help them grow. So then the animals have a meeting. Should these human beings help them craft it? Excuse my French. Here's where the trouble starts. Because the humans listen to each other and they listen to nature and the animals had a meeting and the animals said, you know what? Fox said, I wouldn't. I'll read this page because it's quick. Other animals came to hear what Fox had to say. We should help, Weechamoon said, the corn. I agree, Bean said. Our home is their home now. I think we should too, said Squash. People help us grow. We must help, Deer said. We agreed to feed the people. In return, they care for the homes we share. See, the, the animals and the crops thought that these people were like the people they were dealing with. Fox been watching the whole time. Fox said, I wouldn't. The newcomers don't know our world. Lord have mercy. Sometimes the new people can seem scary, Rabbit said. The creator tells us, to help all living things. This is how the world works. Yes, duck and turkey agree. It's settled. <laughs> Poor turkey. Turkey should have said. <laughs> anyway, it's settled, said Weechamon. We will we will send the first peoples to help the newcomers. This is the story they tell in their culture. It's in the story of ingenuity and survival and grit featuring Julia Roberts. No. This is human beings in a way of knowing that incorporates all of the universe, extending out to these people who have forgotten their way after having migrated out of where they came from, how to do that. And so they go on, the first people listen, then they go out and help these people. And then they eat, they come together, they had a harvest. The people come, the first peoples come over here, these people who they didn't save because the corn and the, and the animals told them to. And they came and did that. All this talk is making us hungry. And what happened after that? You know what happened. They talk about it then at the end. In fact, they then go through how they tell stories, narratives. They tell you the different groups that are there. In fact, they say, about the Wampanoag tribes, the Mashpee Wampanoag people live in Cape Cod area, Massachusetts, call themselves people of the first light. There were 69 Wampanoag tribes, not just one name. Europe ain't all the same people. Evo ain't the same people. Who are these people? There were 69 of those groups living in southeastern Massachusetts at the time the newcomers arrived. These settlers included religious separatists, later known as pilgrims, <laughs> and traders who were the first to colonize the Wampanoag homeland. Colonization is when a group of people take land by force from another group to permanently live there and control resources. Colonization had a devastating effect on all First Peoples. Today, the state of Massachusetts at home is home to only two federally recognized tribes, the Mashpee Wampanoag and the Wampanoag uh, tribe of Gay Head. 
the Aquina. It talks about the storytelling tradition, the Wampanoag piece, and I'm going to end with this one. I love this one here. Try, it says, a Wampanoag tradition of giving thanks. For the Wampanoag people, guardian spirits take the form of animals and plants, like Wichamun, the corn, to watch over human beings. The Wampanoag people honor guardian spirits as well as loved ones who have left this world. Before special meals, they make a plate of food for the spirits to eat and place it outside. Try making a spirit plate at your next gathering in gratitude from plants, animals, and ancestors. Take a pinch of each food served at the meal and put a plate in a special place outside. When you make a spirit plate, think about people you love who have passed on. You can give thanks to plants and animals and make good wishes for others. It's a form of libation. It's a form of ancestral shrine making. This time last year, remember, I was in Nashville with my mom. Last time she was here, now she's an ancestor all around. You make a plate for her. My dear friend, Afia Zakia, Dr. Afia Zakia. We were in Alabama one time just outside of Tuskegee at a little diner for our Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations Conference. This was around 1997. A couple of miles from where they're trying to get uh, Bo Jackson, Charles Barkley. Y'all go over there with your master. Listen to your master's voice. Trying to get... Uh, Coach Prime out of Jackson State and go down there in Auburn, Alabama. Go to hell. You can go to Tuskegee. But um, who have the Turkey Day Classic? You know, a lot of HBCU football was this weekend. And we sitting in there. It's about 7, 8 o'clock at night. We're getting ready to eat. And, you know, uh, that Mississippi-born sister, Dr. Zakia, who is now the director of the Descendants uh, Organization in Mobile. We talked about her because when we were reading, uh, this, she, get, she took that job after we finished reading uh, Barracoon. But uh, Fia pinched off everything and then put an ancestor plate that's the first time i seen one in person and after that that's the practice you get ready to eat you put a little something aside for the ancestor you know so anyway the wampanoag is a beautiful children's book so let's wind up with what's going on now in this context when you start talking about the question of what we do and how we can fashion out of our stories out of our ways of knowing a we a we that didn't exist before we have to understand that that becomes an exercise in common identity that we have to create. It, there are a lot of cultural similarities and there are a lot of cultural differences, but ultimately, politically, ultimately not even when we use word politics. So we talked about that Monday too. And we're going to come back to that in ways of knowing this coming Monday when we finish up, when we start our conversation. It's probably going to be a two-week conversation on ways of knowing. Remember the reading, which is there now, is from John S. Wright, the 20-page article, Intellectual Life, which is a very, very, very rich article on ways of knowing in Africana. We're going to take our time with this. This in some ways is the heart of the Africana studies framework that we're dealing with. Governance is, the, is who we are to each other, but the who we is really begins with ways of knowing. And we got a glimpse of one indigenous way of knowing with this children's book. The, the question then of um, who we are, and how to create a we out of who we are. This is where you see what are the sources. One source is indigeneity. If you are from a place, that's how we always, as human beings, identify ourselves. Where are you from? Who are your people? African people will always ask you that. Who are you? From? Where are you from? In indigenous cultures, in places like the United States and Canada, resistance has always sprung from indigeneity. For example, when indigenous people literally occupied the island of Alcatraz in the bay off San Francisco, uh, in the bay, the bay area, they proposed having occupied 
Alcatraz in the 1960s, creating an indigenous school there. An indigenous college, university. Very important. But that would mean extracting out of all these thousands of different groups similar things that would allow them to form in some kind of formation for self-defense and things like that, and using that as a holding place to continue to reconnect to the indigeneity. That is the source. What happens when they take you across an ocean? And the culture that you have now, framing question two in our African studies framework, which we'll talk about in part two, how did Africans preserve and affirm their ways of life and use their cultures and identities as means to resist enslavement? They had to start mixing and matching, as Mike Gomez says, exchanging their country marks as uh, as a, the generation before Sterling Stuckey writes, slave culture. You got to create a we. You're creating a we on the fly while they're trying to beat any notion of we-ness out of you and insert in your mind the memories of others. Well, therein lies the conflict. The other source is shared experiences. But shared experiences always can be connected to the before. And if you center the before, the shared experiences just become extensions of the before. And the before that you're extending back into isn't a before in a strictly literal sense, it's also a conceptual sense. So the Africana that emerges out of the shared oppression is one that is uh, made necessary by the oppression, but not sufficient by the oppression, because the before you're tapping into is you're back mapping these commonalities into a time before the oppression began, and you're extracting out of that before commonalities. This is the work of Sheikh Under Joe. This is the work of now. Let me pause here because that work is incredibly difficult if you try to do it by yourself. That's why most academics, including black academics, eschew it. That's why when we read the article, I wrote what black studies is not. Black studies is not a celebration of yesterday from slavery to freedom. No, you take that somewhere and you go back over with your master because you letting them stick in your head from English, Spanish, and some old made up narrative. And you ain't even in it until Martin Luther King show up. And then you think you did something by saying, no, we had on some uh, stovepipe hats in the 19th century. And then you think you really did something by saying, well, no, we came before the Mayflower. Okay, well, what about before the, before the Mayflower? Oh, here we go. With that. But you will dress up in a sheet and join the Junior Latin Society. But the minute an African comes and say, we're going to uh, center the before, you want to start raising bloody murder. Why? Because there ain't no money in it, I guess. Are you scared? Or you don't think we can do it? And all that we can deal with. We've all been there. We all live there. We can center our before. So let me wind this up. And I'll resist the urge. Maybe we'll do this one night or maybe we do this next week or whenever I, I was thinking about it. Because when I bought this Chief Seattle book, it reminded me back in 2015, the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations met in Seattle, Washington. And uh, I gave a talk at that time on John Henry Clark. And I talked about John Clark's phrase that he borrowed. Well, I won't say borrowed. He kind of remixed it on being a timekeeper, a timekeeper. In other words, people who look at the long, what he would call the latitude and longitude of history and then and look for the rhythms. What time is it? Borrowing from Queen Mother Moore. What's the hour of the night? Chance to Williams, a view from the bridge. How do you step back and look for patterns? And how can you then use that to build collectivity? Because again, this is an anti-anyone. In fact, it is the opposite. Just like these Wampanoag people try to say them people, 
Our humanity lies in our cultural memory and our ability to contribute that to global humanity. Now people are looking for sustainable energy. And are you really looking? Or are you looking to make some more money? Because we didn't talk about COPA and what they just did when all the oil companies sent up huge delegations over there to the climate change summit so they can make sure that renewable energy that wasn't under their control wasn't at the center of the final statement. And they were able to get fossil fuels, mention some fossil fuels out of the final communique. That's why they went over there. But at any rate, We've got to contribute our humanity. So the sources then, and I'll resist the urge. I want to talk about what I talked about back in Seattle. But we have to understand that our relationships to each other are not defined by the geography of the social structures we find ourselves in. Uh, this is uh, Thulani Davis's new book, The Emancipation Circuit, Black Activism, Forging a Culture of Freedom. I mentioned this before, but I'm evoking it again now for this purpose. What Thulani Davis is writing about is how African people in the United States during Reconstruction and after created these networks of meaning that overflow any particular state or local boundary. And that's where we end today, with two states in the Confederacy, the state of North Carolina and the state of Tennessee, where the hillbillies are bleeding at the top of their bleated voices because the American Negroes don't look at HBCUs just based on what state they're in, but on who we are to each other. You see, back in the 1960s, when the student movement was riding high in this country, you had African people who uh, were going to HBCUs who were part of that work, part of that struggle work. Southern universities, we talked about last week, where they were murdered. Jackson State University, where students were murdered. South Carolina State University, so-called Orangeburg Massacre. So not just Kent State University, these things going on. One of the things that these hillbilly governors, these white nationalist governors and state legislatures and who, who, who thought they could control HBCUs through their presidents, and if you read uh, um, um, Shelter, in the Shelter in the Time of Storm, my brother Jelani Faber's book, he walks through how some of those HBCU college presidents found themselves with impossible choices. Some of them expelled students. It happened to Tennessee State. It happened under Felton Clark at Southern University. Others fought back differently. Others were relieved. There's a whole history of that back and forth. By relieved, I mean fired. Let go. Jelani walks through all that history. He's at North Carolina A&T, by the way. But one of the things that emerged out of the 1960s was out-of-state caps. What is an out-of-state cap? That means that these hillbillies Cause you know, I mean, they were, I mean, they were busting the doors down to go to Valdosta State in Georgia. I mean, people from all over the country were just trying to get to Troy State in Alabama. They were clamoring to get to Texas State University in Texas. Wait, no, wait, no. So they put a cap on. They said we're gonna put caps on because we want these schools to serve the population of the citizens of our state. That ain't the only reason you put that cap on. In fact, that ain't the primary reason. You did that because. Black people who went undertook the Great Migration would send their children back to the HBCUs in the states that they went to, that they came from. So if you want to see a bunch of Chicago Negroes, go to Jackson State University. When I was at Tennessee State, the first people I knew well from Chicago were people whose parents had migrated, or from or from Detroit, whose parents had migrated from Alabama, and then who went to Tennessee A and I, or who knew about Tennessee A and sent them there. North Carolina, you see the migration patterns from Philly. Norfolk State, you come up to East Coast. 
South Carolina State, Claflin, you come up the East Coast. Virginia State, uh, Norfolk State, you come up the East Coast. You see people in Maryland, people in Pennsylvania, people, they send their children down and ain't no HBCUs in California. So when they came, they picked the schools they wanted to go to. Howard University is from everywhere in the African world. It's the international HBCU in the United States. Well, the hillbillies don't leave their little patches. They wish they were in the land of cotton because old times they are not forgotten. So they put these caps on. Fast forward to this year. I'm sure everybody saw, if you didn't, if you're not in the United States, you saw in Tennessee, for example, the Tennessee Finance Ways and Means Committee, a hillbilly named Bo Watson. They want to get rid of the president of Tennessee State, Dr. Glover, Brenda Glover. Some of y'all AKAs, you know, she was y'all media past basilisk. Good sister. Uh, an accountant by training, also PhD. She was on the faculty at Howard for a number of years. And then she went to be the president of Tennessee State University. She's an accountant by training. JD, law degree too. Yeah, law degree, doctorate, and you certified accountant. Yeah. You know what they accuse her, 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 her administration of? Messing up the books. They got to go through the accounting. And you know who was in charge of going through it? The comptroller of the state of Tennessee. Remember that story a few months ago about Mason, Tennessee? Because Ford wanted to put a plant outside of Memphis. And these white boys trying to figure out how they're going to take the control of that town from the black leadership. So they accused them of messing up the books. Guess who's control of looking at Tennessee state books? This Trump supporter named Jason Mumpower. Yeah, the state of Tennessee comptroller. This is a hit. You understand? And they had an education committee meeting. And this hillbilly Bo Watson. Y'all saw the clip. I'm trying to understand. I talked to the president of uh, of the University of Ch uh, Tennessee Chattanooga, and uh, I asked him. I said, uh, "Why can't you get no more African Americans to come to your school?" And he said, "Well, we can't just enroll them. They're going to Tennessee State." And I want to know, Doctor Glover, why? Shouldn't we be trying to get these African-Americans to go other places in Tennessee State? In 1984, there was a federal district court judge named Thomas Wiseman who, uh, who, who signed off on a consent degree, stipulation of settlement, between state of Tennessee, Tennessee State University, some plaintiff interveners and some various assorted parties. And they said that Tennessee State must lose its racial identity by 1990, mid 90s, like 95, 96. It must become 50% white. We'll set aside some seats at the University of Tennessee Law School for some Negro students and maybe some professional schools, but Tennessee State must lose its racial identifiability identity because you know we must have what they would call Derrick Bellum called colorblind constitutionalism. In other words, no school should have a racial identity. Well, let me be very clear. Every damn school in the state of Tennessee, except the HBCUs, are HWCUs. Except if you come and watch University of Tennessee play football on Saturday when they scream Rocky Top and you think you might get lynched. But at any rate, the federal judge is like, 
the burden of integration gonna fall on the HBCU. Y'all play these black schools. That's how they end up trying to push them and they finally went into the OVC because you're playing Grambling and Southern, you're playing Florida AM. No, hell no. Nah. Those are black schools and it makes you racially identifiable. So we play UT Martin and Austin P that makes us non-racially identifiable. Yeah, those are white schools. Austin P literally named for a white governor of Tennessee. Don't matter. You understand the power of whiteness lies in its invisibility, as we've talked about many times. So when we say desegregate, that means become white. When we say integrate, that means become white. Well, now we got a problem because they put those out-of-state caps on. And what they did, what they grilled Dr. Glover before the Tennessee legislature uh, last week, they said to her, among other things, now the books, they're going to fix that. But they want to get rid of her because she's. they said, why you let all these students in? What you mean? Tennessee State let in, oh, I forget the number. They let in, um, well, they let in so many students. I think they may have let in a freshman class of like 3,500. They let in so many students, they didn't have a place to put them. But remember, the Tennessee legislature issued a report a few months ago that said Tennessee State has been shortchanged by hundreds of millions of dollars. And the racist governor of Tennessee, Bill Lee, promised $215 million as a payment this year to Tennessee State. And they're building dorms as we speak. But these hillbillies, his brothers in the Klan adjacent Tennessee State legislature. And when I say Klan adjacent, let me tell you, these are some of the same white boys who voted against taking out the bust of Nathaniel Bedford Forrest, the founder of the Ku Klux Klan, for whom Middle Tennessee State University's mascot was modeled after the Blue Raider until we raised holy hell because we had to play him in the OVC and the brothers would come play basketball. We'd be in the gym talking about what the hell is a Blue Raider? Do you know that's the founder of the Klan? And so they finally changed the mascot, but kept the name just like Ole Miss still called rebels but they changed to a black bear or something from old red but you kept the name anyway the point is that in that process they haven't given the money and now they talking about finding tennessee state because they got too many out-of-state students and you let too many students in fast forward to north carolina what happened in North Carolina? Well, the UNC system also has a cap for out-of-state students. They put that one in place in 1986. For every public university in the, in the state of North Carolina, there's a cap on out-of-state students. In 1986, it was no more than 18%. Every, uh, wait, every? Is it every? Every, wait, no, is it every? No, there was one school that was exempted. No, it's not North Carolina NT. No, it's not Winston-Salem State. No, it's not Elizabeth City State. No, it, it is the North Carolina School for the Arts. You ain't got no talented people in North Carolina that you should be serving first? Well, it's the arts. Well, you know HBCU is closer to that because these people are not just going for Aggie pride because they're from North Carolina. Their grandma may be from North Carolina, or North Carolina or they might be like J.R. Smith. But you want to put a cap on them black people coming into the state. But guess what? They, the University of North Carolina, the people want to go to, paid a fine. They went over their cap two times in two years. And in 2016, they paid a million dollar fine. So A&T ain't the first one. And in fact, A&T, the legislature through the board that governs the, uh, the public schools, they gave North Carolina A&T a four-year cap raise. North Carolina Central, which playing in the Celebration Bowl in a couple of weeks in Atlanta versus Jackson State football, twice in the last couple of years, they exceeded their uh, their cap because people are going to HBCUs. These young people coming to HBCUs, y'all. And 
the North Carolina legislature, well, North Carolina Board of Governors, the University of North Carolina Board of Governors, allowed them, they exempted them from the fine in 2021. And in 2021, they uh, the board raised the cap to 25%. So the news y'all saw in the news this week where they fined North Carolina A&T $2 million because they let in too many out-of-state students, that's even with the cap raised. And it's only going to get worse. And I talked to the young people who uh, run the North Carolina A&T student newspaper when they were here, when they when uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones started her uh, Center for Journalism and Democracy, and there were HBCU students there. And I had spent a long time with the Texas Southern students and the North Carolina A&T students in particular, just listening to them. One of the things they're concerned about is something I was concerned about when I was their age at Tennessee State. And they tried to put this mandate on us. And by the way, Tennessee State is still hella black. No, you couldn't do it because you can't bust people to college. You dumb people. We used to call press conferences uh, with all kinds of things we do. Had a white student at Tennessee State be the main spokesperson for white people everywhere. Oh, we had these people twisted around. We had a good time messing with them. But these young people told me, they said, we're kind of concerned because A&T is growing like leaps and bounds. And there are a lot of students coming. But they're also kind of going out of their way to get these white students. And I thought to myself, I've seen this show before. I saw Gail Sayers do it. Y'all stop chasing these people. Your children want to come home. It's okay to be who you are. Take a page from our indigenous kin. Be who you are. Start at the source. Start at the before. No, there weren't HBCUs in Africa. And you ain't got to claim University of Timbuktu. No, you ain't got to claim Luxor. And my, but they were centers of learning, as Du Bois tried to tell you for 60 years in his speeches at HBCUs, that must be the grounding that informed you. Du Bois said if a French university is French, a German university is German, what is a Negro college in the United States of America? It is not an imitation white school. And when they change these laws and desegregation happens, you're going to have to answer the real question. And the real question is race and culture. So why these hillbillies scream? Bloody murder because your children want to come home. You organize and break their backs. You break their political backs and you overflow the boundaries. And if they want to take your tax money away from these schools, you organize and you go to political war with them and you make them pay a price that's so heavy that they can't do nothing about it. And if Deion Sanders leaves Jackson State tomorrow, you young people think about where to go play football, don't follow him to Oklahoma because in a year or two, when they find out that the magic didn't transfer, Watch how quick they're going to put him up on some old ridiculous stuff, catch him somewhere doing something and not doing something and say, see, see, see. No, nah, because the magic don't transfer. But I suspect Dion knows that. Let's stop for the day, bro. <laughs> Let's stop for the day. So. Yeah, I'm speechless. And thank you. <laughs> thank you. I'm in this chat. Uh, so many great suggestions and feedback. Oh, Lord. Yeah. PWI. I see. I'm going to, I'll be spending the afternoon reading this. They say it's making me depressed. Uh, you know, it's so over wherever we are. Listen, wherever we are, wherever we've been, you know, this is, we start here, you know, putting it together. You know, we've all made decisions and had thoughts and done things based on what we've been indoctrinated to do. There's no shame in that. 400 years is a long time to beat the drum. Right. A long time. Like that any of us have any freedom whatsoever is a testament to our ancestors, period. But it's, right. it, they, they did a lot of work. You know, I mean, you held up cards in different languages to indoctrinate. I mean, it's, yes. And all of us went to school from kindergarten. Yes, kindergarten all the way through <laughs> indoctrinated. With, right. with Actually, that's that's an important point. That's a very important point. School is about socialization. 
In fact, there's a brand new book, maybe we talk about it next week, that traces the history of public education in this country. In the United States, beginning in the last quarter of the 19th century, coming forward, the war was over the curriculum. Because a lot of these European, a lot of these white people come from Europe and they weren't, they would come with their cultures. And of course, there was the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1884. These people started saying, they're not going to be Americans unless we give them the story. And that's the foundation for this stuff to this day. And isn't the war over curriculum now? CR, let's ban the books. Like right. it, it's cyclical and it's willful and purposeful. So that's this right. is that's why right. we do what we do every Saturday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Right. Come on now. They don't know about that. <laughs> we yes. are our Saturday love. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. Oh my goodness. Uh so let's thank you. First of all, as always, I love you. I appreciate the, the time you gave me before we click no, live because I needed you. it. I needed it. Uh because you know, we have some decisions to make moving forward, centering us, centering the before. And uh love that. you gotta do that one. Center yeah. before. I'm I'm reached out to Uray as we're going, you know, yeah. we have work to do. We have work yes. to do, but all of this is possible because we've all made decisions. Like you said, you've devoted your whole life no to question. dismantling this. And we all have to, you know, be very willful and purposeful, even with the choices that we make in our entertainment, because you are um, informing the world, but also uh, empowering the world. We we have Black Friday, which is the, the, um, the day that most of these companies depend on your consumerism. And it's our 1.8 trillion dollars that has literally bolstered so many uh, companies. And they wait for this one day, this one weekend into Cyber Monday to recoup all of the losses and to put themselves in, in the black of all things, to put themselves in the black of all things, Dr. Carr, black. in the black. And that's yeah. a good thing, right? So we talked about it last time. No, two, two Thanksgivings ago. It went, uh, maybe next week, uh, next week, next year, I'll finally go back to the Macy's Parade. I thought about going this time, but I said I'm not going because wow. you know there's a reason why Klaus is the last act. Santa Claus is the last flu. Yes, because yes. He's oh, was, saying, bye, bye. But y'all go back and watch that episode. That was I remember. I was sitting there like, yeah, the Macy's Parade is all about that. I mean, my man is saying bye, B U Y. <laughs> Klaus is there, and uh, is it is it me or Prof? Did I see Christmas stuff go up earlier this year? It, Christmas music, people's decorations, like it is. Where tis the season to make to make uh, companies that don't invest in the black community rich? That's how, that's how I put it. That's how I put it. Tis so. the season, yo. But Black Friday, but but you know, I don't I don't get the sense. I know we 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 wrapping up. I don't get the sense that they they made as much money yesterday. Maybe, I, but I don't have any barometer. As you said, we're getting more conscious. You know, we are, we are awakening and yeah. this this is problematic, as you mentioned, but it, it can't be stopped now. There's too many people who are paying attention yeah. and uh, buying differently. Uh, Black Karen, that's her handle, uh, said that we should all the books because during the break, you know, during while you were talking, we were all looking up the book. Oh, and good. I'm like, you know, we have a whole reference section with 300 bookstores in new okay. in narrative and this sold out. It sold out. So is it? Uh, Yes, you know what? This is why yes. I love this is solidarity. See, this indigenous black solidarity. It's a beautiful thing. Oh, by the way, this is today Small Business Saturday. I always lose track. I think Black Friday, Small Business Saturday, Cyber, Cyber Monday, whatever, and then Giving Tuesday. 
Like, oh, okay. give, right. give a subscription to Narrative on Giving Tuesday. Oh, I like that. And you know, and I don't push the way, you know, all right. And, well, and, I know you don't push. Like, no, I shouldn't have like, said you say less. No, no, but I think it's, it's we should start, you know, and that's, yeah. that's my, you know, that's my, because I hate that. You know, I hate when people are like, oh, go buy, go, go, go buy this, buy this, buy this. I want people to come because their their spirits are moved to, but, you know, maybe we can, you know, give them some more salt. Yes. Yes. Give it Tuesday, give the gift of narrative. Give the uh, gift of narrative. We, for that, that little subscription fee, y'all see, we work 24 hours, seven days a week. Yes, we do. You're yes. going to get more than you. In fact, that ain't no money. And if you bought a master class for somebody, you need to call them people telling them you want your money back. I'm struggling. They they advertise now on Sirius XM. That's all right. But, but see, my, you know what the beautiful thing about it is? And I love the way we started this. Now, two years ago, we pour clean glasses of water. Ain't no need in getting mad at them. Because my thing is, if you say Bill Clinton on his master class, if you want somebody to do something, you know what you do, and then you tell them how they can help you. Okay, I watched this one time. I just spent $5,000. Where's my money? And then every Saturday, we hear, we don't repeat ourselves. And you realize, see, the way you shut this stuff down is you pour the clean glass of water. That's why at Nicole Hannah Jones' Center for uh, Democracy and Journalism, we all stand there. And Jason Johnson, the first word of his mouth, and the question he asked me was, Karen Hunter, you good? Why? Because I'm not MBMS. Oh, you talking about governance. And the question was, as he mentioned you, he mentioned Roland, but he asked me, how does it feel to be in a space where you don't have to worry about? That's I spent my whole life in black spaces. I am free. I am free. I'm free. I'm free. And, you know, come to death row. No, I'm saying no, or not. Stay where you are. But see, what you're not going to do is bring your master's voice over here, or you can, but you're not going to be unchallenged. We could, I mean, this is a space where we have, we must have the basic discussions. And by the way, y'all, Monday night, John, John S. Wright, we're starting the, 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 the ways of knowing. It's going to be a lot of different opinions. There's a lot of people in here when we read this indigenous piece here. And again, I think about, um, you know, people who are Christian. Muslim who would say, well, you know, we pour libation. If we do this, uh, I have some questions. I got some pushback. We want all of that because we're building a we. There's no we that exists. But you know who don't want it? Them hillbilly legislations in Tennessee and North Carolina because they got a we where they stick you in and say you stay there. That's not what this is, y'all. We free over here. Free. We free. So get your global majority uh, black on black. Come on. Black, 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 black on black. Uh, it's a drop. It's limited. So uh, I think it's going away December 2nd or 4th. So, oh, so you just got a limited time. You know, there's other global majority stuff you can buy. No, it's less than a week. We yeah. Need. Yeah. I mean, you know, because I, I like things to be like, I'm thinking about Fabergé eggs and all yeah. of these quote unquote special things because they're yeah. rare. You can't, you know, it's like, okay, why don't we create rareness and specialness in the things that we put out? So I, I was, uh, I mean, I was, uh, Almost assaulted for the Octavia Butler hoodie. <laughs> I said, <laughs> "Remember that commercial? Who was it on Soul Train? That uh, can I get this? No, my brother. Yes, <laughs> get your home. Yes, <laughs> yes. No, my no, my sister. You yeah. Get so get in when you when you can. Uh, sure. and if you, you know, if you can, if and it's not, you know, again, this is this is you know, we're gonna keep we're gonna keep going. We're gonna keep going oh, as the baby grows into adulthood. We're gonna keep going. Okay. They keep feeding. All right, I love you immensely does michigan play ohio state today i have no idea i'm not a cop neither do i <laughs> bye you classic y'all have fun Love Yo, you. Yes. <laughs>